G'day mate, Forty here. This is really exciting. So, I'm coming to you live, not just from Australia, but this is my first real live stream on Rumble. And doggone it if it's not working. So, we're going out live on Rumble. Wake up America. Wake up Australia. Wake up Israel. Wake up United Kingdom. We are live on Rumble. We are live on Odyssey. We are live on YouTube. We are live on my Facebook page. We are live on my Facebook profile. This is so exciting. Like all, all around the world, people are joining the Situationist Revolution. So I just spontaneously decided to fly here on, on Wednesday. About uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesday, I made the decision to come here. And then by noon, I had my ticket. And by 6 p.m., I was making my way to the airport. By 10.30 p.m., the plane was moving, taking off. 15 hours later, well, actually, our, our plane was, was early. We, we made it in 14 hours and about 50 minutes, direct flight from LAX to Sydney. And my God, is the water pressure here amazing? Whoa, I mean, it just feels like the entire Colorado River is coming down on your head. So I'm not criticizing the good people of California who understandably need to ration water and discourage people giving away you know, way too much water. Look, I understand, right? I don't blame the Democrats because we because we don't have any water pressure in in LA. But my God, the water pressure here in Sydney—it's like the the wettest year ever recorded here in Sydney, and the water just just pours down on you like a cascade of heavenly blessings. I mean, it's heavenly blessings to to just get in the shower here. Now you may say, forty, you're looking at Australia through rose-colored glasses. This is what you did last time. All you're doing is saying, you know, how wonderful things are in Australia. Well, yeah, I am putting on rose-colored glasses. And yes, I am excitable. And yes, I am promiscuous with my love because I just fall in love again, you know, each day. I When I went back to Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, after my last two-month trip to Australia, I just fell in love with L.A. and California all over again. So, yeah, I put on the, the rose-colored glasses when I come here, and I just focus on the things that I love. And one thing I love is the amazing water pressure. Oh, another thing I love, there's this program called uh, Sculpture by the Sea. And it is just gorgeous. So I, I thought it was on the, the Bondi... One day, could you, could, could you walk? And and it was, but... Come on. Well, oh, I didn't set this up. So I thought it was on the Bondi, could you walk? And it was, but... Uh, it was way down near Bondi. So it's like a five-mile up and down walk from Kuji to Bondi. So I, I'm going past Kuji. I'm going past Clavelli. 
uh, go past other suburbs, Tamarama, Model Rama, right, where so many models used to hang out. And then finally, as I get close to Bondi, we just start seeing all these amazing sculptures where people are just lined up. And almost all the sculptures have, you know, please don't touch. And it just made me think, you couldn't really have this in Los Angeles because it would just get destroyed. We can't have so many nice things in so many of our great major cities in the world because we have such a high number of super predators who probably should be in prison. But many of these sculptures were fairly delicate and they were left out all day with signs, please don't touch the sculptures. And overwhelmingly, I only saw one person violate this. It was an Asian tourist who just like lightly touched one sculpture. But you can't have this in LA. And I think this is just emblematic of a bigger problem that we have in many of the world's biggest cities is that we just have way too many super predators who belong in prison, right? If you are not pro-social enough to abide by signs such as, you know, protect environmentally sensitive species, don't touch the sculptures, don't climb on the sculptures, if you're not pro-social enough to do that, then you probably don't deserve to be walking among us. Why are so many people of primarily West African descent always trying to claim they're Egyptians or Israelites? West Africa has many cultures with, West, with rich histories, such as the Wolof, the Igbo, the Yoruba, the Mandinka. Right, so I think in large part it's a claim for prestige. So it may not seem that way to, to the Jewishly skeptical, but Jew carries with it in much of the world, like it's a term of opprobrium, but also in much of the world is a term of prestige. It means, generally speaking, that you're expected to be a higher achiever than normal, you're expected to be smarter than normal, you're expected to be richer than normal, to have you know, closer than normal ties with other people, particularly in your own community, to have better family life than other people, to have better, higher quality of life than other people. So for many people, to be Jewish is a term of prestige, and they expect more from Jews. So when you get a Jewish doctor and a Jewish dentist, Jewish attorney, a Jewish professor, Right? You don't expect your Jewish professional, if all you know about them is that they are Jewish, you don't expect them to have a lower than level, average level of competency. So Ron Unz has been making these ridiculous arguments about uh, how Jews are getting into Ivy League schools on the basis of you know, pro-Jewish affirmative action. But if that was true, you would see lower levels of competence from Jewish professionals. You'd see a higher proportion of Jewish doctors getting sued for medical malpractice. You see all the other problems that you see routinely with affirmative action. So with affirmative action admissions into medical schools, you then see the recipients of those affirmative action recipients having astronomical rates of medical malpractice, being shunted away from the most prestigious areas, being you know, placed into areas where they can do the least harm. What about mental hospitals? Shouldn't we open them back up? Yes, we should absolutely be opening the mental hospitals back up and putting people in there who can't keep their bloody hands off the sculptures. They're just these, these gorgeous sculptures by the sea here in, in Bondi. And they all have a sign, don't touch, don't cl climb on the sculptures. And I was just thinking you couldn't get away with this in LA or in many of our major cities because there are so many predators. There are so many antisocial people. And they shouldn't be allowed to walk among us. If you can't achieve minimum levels of social acceptability, 
then you should be walking among us, mucking up things for the rest of us. Like, why should we have to live without nice things? So on this sculpture by the sea exhibit by Bondi Beach, like all these beautiful sculptures, all these signs, don't, don't walk on the sculptures, don't touch the sculptures. And people were abiding by these restrictions. Right? That's, that's the great thing when you're in a cohesive society with high social trust that people by and large abide by the restrictions. So you can have nice things. There's almost no trash around. Almost no fat people around. Everyone's in shape. Like I saw this Sheila. She did on my, my walk to, to Bondi yesterday. This Sheila, she did five pull-ups. Right? There's one right after the other. I mean, how often do you see a Sheila doing pull-ups? But that's what Australian women are like. They're strong. They're fit. I mean, the sun's... I'm hearing the birds chirping by 4 a.m. So... Today I got to sleep in, thank God. I slept in until 5.15 a.m. I was in bed by by 9 p.m. I had two good nights sleep, completely over my jet lag because I just went a full-on day on Friday. I showed up to synagogue Friday evening, then went to bed. Now I've had two good nights sleep. I feel great, so completely over my jet lag. I really appreciate being in, in areas with high social trust and high social cohesion. And it just reminds me of the enormous price that we pay for the dysfunctional and the super predators in many of America's biggest cities. Everything is lazier in 40s Australian streams. The best are when he's attacking sacks of compost. The Kvetching then is as Jewish as he can get over there, God forbid. <laughs> well, I don't have my full setup, all right? I, I, like, I slept my CPAP machine, right? Everything I brought with me, I brought on a carry-on bag. So I slept my CPAP machine. I, I brought over my Bob and Brad massage gun. I brought over my activator, my laptop, my the same cam that I use at home. But I don't have all the, the different uh, sound uh, hardware that I have at home. I don't have the, the $400 Shure microphone that, that I have at home. Because I have to put everything in in my one carry-on bag. So I, I put my sweatpants under my jeans, brought one nice shirt with me, a few pairs of socks, a few pairs of undies, about uh, 80, 80 uh, crystal lights. <laughs> brought 80 crystal light drink containers so I don't run out of crystal light classic orange and the crystal light lemonade. I uh, brought my modafinil, brought my... Uh, Beef organ supplements so that I don't run out of strength. So I'm able to do, seeing people do proper pull-ups, I realize I may have been lying to you when I said I'm doing pull-ups. I'm only able to do like three-quarters of a pull-up, but I can do two three-quarters of a pull-up, one right after the other. Then I need a rest of it, then I can do a few more. So I figure yesterday I probably did like eight three-quarter pull-ups or total. So maybe that's the equivalent of like, two or three full-on pull-ups. So met some Yanks here. We're able to talk about the National Football League. <sighs> Just connecting with all my mates from growing up here. I grew up two hours away at Avondale College in Kurumbong, near Morissette, near, near Lake Macquarie, near Newcastle. I was just uh, north of here, two hours drive away. Uh, and then I got so many friends here. Like, it's so easy to make friends in shul, go, go bowling, go hiking. I've uh, got my 
my SIM card so I can hook up my cheap Australian phone. Okay. Was Kanye right in describing the media as the Jewish media? He was overstating it. So Jews are disproportionately influential in the American news media because they have high average verbal IQs, but it's not equivalent to the Jewish media, right? They're just disproportionately influential. So they're one and a half percent of the American population. Perhaps they are 10% of the major players in the news game. But there's not much evidence that the news industry would be that much different if there are only 1% of the players and instead that the news industry was run by Anglicans. I mean, Anglicans by and large in America is just as left-wing as Jews. Once she tatted up, the pull-up girl, no, she wasn't. She was fit. So another thing people noticed in Shaw when I went back to Shaw, so it's been a year since I've been to Shaw here, they said, ah, oh, you've gained weight. So yeah, I, I gained 10 pounds back. Within a month of returning to the United States, Last January, I was back to 170 pounds, which is what I'm at right now. When I left Australia, I was 160 pounds. Because when you're walking 10 miles a day, a lot easier to, to lose weight. But my God, I had four helpings of dessert yesterday. I had two lunches, four helpings of dessert. The, the chocolate cake was to die for. But at least I didn't have dinner and, and I walked 10 miles, so... Quite a lot more tats then when I was growing up here in the 70s and when I visited in the 80s, but still not as many tattoos as in California. And I don't think I've seen a Mexican here. I've only seen, God forbid, about four black people since I've been here in Sydney. And the only time I saw what looked to be, you know, full-on Aboriginal was when he was walking drunk through the middle of traffic. That was on my last visit, so... Most people will concede that a lot of CEOs and boards of directors of Ashkenazi, but they're individuals, their group has nothing to do with it. You're anti-Semite. Well, I wouldn't say the group has nothing to do with it. But what what is the exact influence and correlation, right? That's a more complex matter. So Anglicans are pretty left-wing. Like when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and all that stuff, Really, are, are Anglicans that much different from, from Ashkenazi Jews? How would you compare the quality? Because I'm just the sound quality. Because I'm just using, I'm using my my same stream cam, but I don't have any other. I'm using the microphone from the stream cam. So, how would you compare the sound quality? And then I've applied like five different sound filters in Streamlabs. So how would you compare the sound quality to what I'm doing now? And the stream cam's about two feet away from me, while normally I'm speaking about two inches into a microphone. When it comes to why it's not about individuals, the whole generalized collective group. Well, in some circumstances, it, it may make sense to talk about whites. Then in other circumstances, you want to divide them up into the Scots-Irish, the, 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 the Puritan ancestors who come from what, North Anglia, the the cavaliers so the the different the different tribes of englishmen who shaped the united states this whole switching back and forth where people are individuals no wait they're actually their group is getting tiresome i don't think there's any alternative 
in some circumstances, it's appropriate to see people as members of groups. That is the human default. Is it when you see a black person, a Jew, a Mexican, a Chinese, a Japanese, European, the, the human default is to see people as groups, as members of groups and not as individuals. It's only when you get to know them as individuals, then you start to go beyond group characteristics. But because we're limited in how much energy and you know, mental processing we have, how much empathy that we have available, yet we naturally slot people we don't know into representatives of their groups. So the more Anglo-Saxon you are, I think the more likely, or meaning the more Northern European you are, the more likely you are to see people primarily as individuals and not as members of groups. Pretty much everyone in the world primarily sees people they don't know as representatives of certain groups. Thanks for coming clean, <laughs> clean on the pull-ups. Well, I've, uh, I've been walking around, getting in lots of exercise, and I have been staying in the eastern suburbs because I'm trying to keep my eye out for the roving gangs of violent bogans. I mean, I, I'm sure there are just roving gangs of violent bogans out there if I start moving west from the eastern suburbs. So the eastern suburbs of Sydney where the Jews are, real estate's astronomically expensive. And so higher real estate values, they really clean up a lot of other problems. All right, they kind of sort the wheat from the chaff. You, you get the best people here, don't we, folks? So as I, as I start moving west in my journey, I've got to keep my eyes out for those roving gangs of violent bogans. Anglicans wouldn't be so censorious. Is that true? Are Anglicans more pro-free speech than Jews? I think Jews of any group of which I'm aware have the most pro-free speech attitudes. Now, that doesn't apply to all Jewish organizations. Obviously, the Anti-Defamation League tries to effectively run what speech policies for much of the Western world, particularly on social media. And they've had a great deal of success, but the Anti-Defamation League is not representative of most Jews. So I think overall, as a group, Jews are less likely to say that someone should be fired for saying something negative about a group. Jews, I think, are the most free speech, pro-free speech of any group of, of ethnic or religious group of which I'm aware. Nathan Kaufner still has his job at Cambridge University. So the woke crowd came for Nathan Kaufner's, first of all, in the Cambridge University student newspaper, then in a Daily Mail article, but it hasn't picked up any steam. So Nathan Kofnis is in a, quite a different position from Noah Carl. So Kofnis was much more selective in where he would publish compared to Noah Carl. And Kofnis was not as deliberatively, deliberately confrontational and controversial as Noah Carl. Uh, Kofnis was more careful in his wording and Kofnis was, I think, above board with the people who were hiring him. He, you know, gave, he pointed out all the articles that he'd published. Kofnis published in more prestigious journals than, than Noah Carl did. So I think uh, Nathan Kofnis is going to be okay. In many ways, there's more free speech in elite circles in England than in the United States, or at least in English universities such as Oxford and Cambridge. All right, good, barely got some chocolate babka. I got the chocolate babka and had two helpings of chocolate cake. And then I had a chocolate with like a, an apricot, you know, inside thing going on. 
And then at lunch at Shul, I had the cholent with no meat in it, just the, the beans and the potatoes, so good. And the, then the hummus was great with crackers and potato chips. And then whenever I eat out, I always make sure I eat lots of salad because I cannot be bothered to collect, prepare, shop for, and preserve salad. It just takes way too much time in my real life. So whenever I eat out, I always go for the salad. I don't know what, why Jews are so excited. Is it like, what's the cabbage salad thing that Jews always have available on, on Shabbat? Cabbage salad with mayonnaise. I don't like it, but I figure I should eat some fresh cabbage. So I, I always eat lots of lots of salad. Now, I went shopping at uh, Aldini's. Apparently, it's a major grocery chain, and, and they have like 170 outlets in the United States. I never heard of it in Southern California, but it's the low-cost chain. So low-cost, you have to spend $2 to get a shopping cart, and then they'll refund it to you if you bring it back. But I had to push the shopping cart so far, the car, that it's like, you can keep your $2. Also, they also charge you a 0.5% surcharge if you use a credit card. But given that my credit card gives me 1% back, I still come out a winner. So I spent $184 on groceries, just stacked up on the protein bars, stacked up on, on the peanut butter. The almond milk is to die for here. Really good quality almond milk. Uh, oh, stacked up on the granola and the muesli. And so my $184 Australian grocery bill, it came to 121 American. I mean, the American dollar is so strong right now. It's something like 63 American cents will get you about, uh, what is it? One Australian dollar. Okay, who runs the Biden administration? He, he, he's sort of bipolar. He says, well... Putin will just stop the war when it's when the costs outweigh the benefits, and he'll just stop. He'll just stop. And then the next thing is, Russia won't end the war until it totally rethinks its national identity. Timothy Snyder is completely incoherent. I did a piece where that I led in my newsletter some time ago, where I just quoted what he said on the Ezra Klein podcast. He he was attributing crazy psychological properties to Putin. He said Putin doesn't care about the Russian economy. Putin, wait a second, the leader of a country who doesn't care how the economy is doing? Give me a break. I mean, he said he said several things as crazy as that. Re- remember how Timothy Snyder came became this big thing, okay? He in the but, aftermath of the Trump election, when the way to get traction on social media was to be the most tribal fear-mongering person you could and warn about the maximally scary Trump scenario, which I have to admit was born out on January 6th, but still the point is the biggest rabble-rousers, the biggest fear-mongers got the attention, so he got all that traction on Facebook, a book editor I know, saw the post on Facebook, said this guy knows how to get traction on Facebook. Hey, want to write a little book? He wrote a tiny little book that sold a jillion copies. That's why Timothy Snyder is with yeah. us, because he's highly tribalistic and good at scaring people. All right. what, you, you were about to make a point when I brought in Timothy Snyder. Well, the, on this issue of uh, Biden uh, or, or Putin being deposed, a, a, a theory I threw out, I, I had this guy, uh, Samuel uh, Cherup from the Rand Corporation, who's very good, Ukraine expert, on my podcast. He didn't buy this theory, but it kind of half makes sense to me. I mean, because I can't figure out what the Biden endgame is. On the one hand, they do seem but worried Biden about... can't either. So you're... Well, right. But here was the thought. They do seem worried about nukes, so it seems like they don't really want to push things too close to Russia's border. Uh, they're, they're presumably aware that there's a threat as the war drags on of Ru- Russians starting to uh, do better. So if both of those extremes are unfavorable and option C is just like things saying more or less where they are, why are they so hostile toward peace initiatives? And uh, well, one, one possibility, I thought, is, you know, there is this problem, and it's a real problem, of 
any peace deal leaves Putin in charge with a fair amount of terrain, any peace deal now. A, that's positive enforcement for invading a sovereign country. Bad. B, it's politically bad for Biden because everybody points out that it's uh, reinforcement for invading a sovereign country. And so it's like, hey, hey, Biden, you just lost to Putin. And what I thought is, if they think they can just play, play this out long enough for Putin to be deposed, they can kind of declare victory on both counts, even if Russia stays. So then they can do their peace deal. Man, they got their timestamps all wrong. I was, I was rely, relying on, on Mickey and, and Robert Wright's timestamps. They got it all wrong. Come on, man. Get it together. Administration. I mean, I actually taped this conversation with Brett Weinstein yesterday, which we can also talk about in the pair room. What? Oh, that's, that's not for me to decide. And it's his podcast, so I don't know when it's going to air. But, uh, but he was big on this. very confident. He was highly alarmed. Well, there, there have been times this problem, and it's a real problem, of any peace deal leaves Putin in charge with a fair amount of terrain, any peace deal now. A, that's positive enforcement for invading a sovereign country. Bad. B, it's politically bad for Biden because everybody points out that it's uh, reinforcement for invading a sovereign country. And so it's like, hey, hey, Biden, you just lost to Putin. And what I thought is, if they think they can just play, play this out long enough for Putin to be deposed, they can kind of declare victory on both counts, even if Russia stays. So then they can do their peace deal. Russia's got land, but you can still say, no, it was negative reinforcement for invading because the leader was deposed. And B, Biden beat Putin because Putin's not around anymore. Now, Samuel Cherup didn't buy that. He knows more than I do, but I think it's an interesting theory. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, he, he, we, there, there's sort of a unified uh, theory of the Biden administration, which is forming. And it was bizarrely uh, put forward in the Washington Post by Ashley Parker, of all people, who's usually sort of an unhinged, uh, sorry, an extreme pro-Biden voice. She's the one who said, who said, you know, tried to draw a connection between January 6th and the, and the uh, attack on Pelosi using like a few little data points. Didn't really add up. Anyway, her point is she talks to the Biden, people in the Biden administration and they say the problem with these guys is they only game out the best case scenario. They don't spend a lot of time on the things that can go wrong and couple that with. In addition to that, this best case scenario is always highly leveraged and a triple bank shot. So the best case scenario for his legislation was, gee, we have a, you know, not even a, a vote advantage in the Senate. We have a one vote advantage in the Senate. So we'll pass everything on. You know, we'll pass this giant new new deal, uh, even though we can only can't afford to lose any votes. Uh, we'll pass this giant new new deal on this uh, this uh, special reconciliation bill, and we'll put everything in, and the result will be a gigantic triumph. Trump is a new FDR. It was like a double bank shot, never going to happen. Much too complicated. Uh, similarly, they think, oh, this is great. Putin will lose. Uh, you know, we'll get the regime change in Russia, and then China will be scared away from Taiwan, and we'll get win 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 win. Okay, triple bank shot. Uh, and let's not don't don't you know? Let's go for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, think big. Uh, and, and that would be the unifying theory. He hasn't thought it through. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and I didn't even know who's doing the thinking in the administration. I mean, I actually taped this conversation with Brett Weinstein yesterday, which we can also talk about in the pair room. What? Oh, that's, that's not for me to decide. And it's his podcast, so I don't know when it's going to air. But, uh, but he was big on I this. He's not very confident. He was highly alarmed. Well, there, there have been times when I thought I won in the past, and, and uh, I was uh, like, like with Chris Hitchens, you know, and it's like you realize atmosphere accounts for so much. I, I think in this kind of argument, it's going to be the people who agreed with you going in are going to say you won. It's, you know, it's, you, you agreed with him on Ukraine, though, right? Uh, we, we didn't talk much about that at all. Okay. Okay. But, but anyway, he, he's very alarmed about Biden's cognitive uh, help. But who, Biden's cognitive thing is irrelevant. Whoever's making decisions, we want to have, uh, you know, high cognitive ability. But if they then pass it up to Biden and he puts a checkmark on it, then he, whoever that, that unknown person is, is the important thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, you know, why haven't there's so many things we haven't seen good reporting on? One, well, first of all, one is like, what does a blue check on Twitter get you right now? There are a lot of people saying, oh, it's only a status symbol. I'm pretty sure it's bullshit. You know, Bill Sherr said on the DMZ podcast last night, when he first got his blue check, he noticed right away, he got a lot more blue check followers. So there's that, apparently. I think it, it, I've heard that either you can set it or it's set by default if you're a blue check, that you either only see other blue check tweets or preferentially see them. I'm pretty sure this algorithm exists, but why can't, I mean, for God's sake, why doesn't Jack Dorsey for once do a public service and just tell us? Like, what is the deal? Well, 
You want to know all sorts of things about the black box that is Twitter. Uh, this is a simple one. How how real are the advantages of blue checks? And right, and right. Uh, but anyway, the other piece of reporting I'd like to see, and you'd think we'd have seen some, is like who does have influence in this White House? Has there ever been a White House where that was a more important question? Maybe Reagan in the waning days. Um, but uh, no, right, I've been I've been complaining that for for a while. Uh, like, what are they doing? We started to get. We started. There's no Maggie Haberman for the Biden White House to tell us exactly what's happening because the Biden people, unlike the Trump people, don't call up Maggie Haberman and tell her everything that's happening. So, uh, it, it, you know, they, we we don't know. I mean, I my my best guess is uh, is is you know that it's, it's very very political. That one of the reasons they uh, one of the reasons they're so hawkish now is because of the midterms, uh, and after the midterms, uh, flexibility will be possible, as they say. But Biden is still haunted by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is, as everybody points out, that is when his poll numbers plummeted. He was at 50 percent and above before Afghanistan. Then he plummeted to the low 40s and he's never recovered. So he doesn't want that to happen again. Uh, So that's a bad influence. By the way, in in the the, Obama White House, I assume there was Tom Donilon, but Tom Donilon is not in the Biden White House. His brother is, but not him. I mean, also, you know, Obama was in charge of shit, including his faculties. You know, it's like, you know, I, 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 the gatekeepers and it matters who they are, but, you know. Who decided after Benghazi to put the whole effort on, onto this video and to like cover up what had actually happened for a few days? Was that an Obama? Was that a, I think Obama was sort of out of touch, was out of pocket. I, was that an Obama decision? I don't think it was an Obama I don't know. Decision. I think it was maybe last I think week. It was somebody else's. I think it was in the parrot room last week where I called up that old that 2013 Wall Street Journal article indicating that the person decisive in the arming of the Syrian rebels, at least one of the two programs, the CIA army may have started earlier, but was Tony Blinken. Tony Blinken. Uh, well, it could, be, it could be Tony Blinken. I mean, yeah. that, that is his job. <laughs> So well now, but he I mean, may actually be doing his job. He, he, had, he had just become, I think, deputy national security, no, but, uh, security but advisor. But now it's his job to set foreign policy, so maybe he's actually setting foreign policy. Oh, I think he's playing a big role. The question, the question there is just him versus Jake Sullivan, who is doing what? I think they're pretty much on the same page, right? And it's um, not a good page, probably. But like I say, I don't think they are that political, and I think there is somebody else involved who is totally political. Either his wife or or uh, Ron Klain would be yeah. the two main, or Mike Donlin. Hey, you, you know one reason I'm happy Elon bought Twitter. There's a in, in the newsletter we're publishing today, there's a piece about this attempt to it's like it's closer to true McCarthyism than, than the stuff we've been seeing on Russia. There's a uh, there's a, a company called the China Project that puts out a very good pod, American company called very good podcast called Seneca. And a disgruntled former employee is contending that, you know, without any evidence, but, but she thinks they are agents of the Chinese government. You know, and they, they've been very critical of China, even though they're pro engagement. So not as critical as some. Um, and she's gotten near Marco Rubio. And so now there's serious discussion of taking, uh, you know, they put out a newsletter, they put out the podcast, there's serious discussion, and, and Rubio apparently is, is spearheading the charge along with uh, Chris Smith in the House um, to actually do some kind of investigation that could lead them to be designated agents of a foreign power, which would, well, it would create various kinds of problems for them, but as social media stands, you know, it would get them some kind of special warning label, I think, on all their posts, and probably demote them via the algorithm, I assume. It would give them the status of, like, RT, and, and uh, so I, I just think Musk will be, I hope. Okay, uh, David, how's it going? Hey, Brooke Hashem. Hey. Sabbath just ended here about an hour ago. I assume you're already uh, Sunday afternoon where you're at. Yeah, it is uh, 10.43 Sunday morning where I'm at. So you're usually three hours earlier than me, and now you're uh, 15 hours later than me. Yeah. It's a it's a whole new world. So it's uh, it's good to talk to you because like it, change is exciting. Going going to a new place is exciting, and variety is exciting. But we also need things that stay the same. And so talking to my friend Duvid, talking to my other friends online, it's a way of like keeping some familiarity 
in your life, even as you're doing a lot of new things. So how do you, how do you fall out on variety versus comfort with just doing the same thing? Do you, do you have a higher than average need for variety or higher than average need for comfort? This point in my life, probably, I don't know if it's comfort, but I don't do much variety. You like, I hardly go anywhere. I do basically the same thing every day. Um, you know, unfortunately, I've fallen out of contact with almost everybody. Uh, possibly also what uh, you know, my decline in uh, Judaism, because Judaism is dependent upon uh, you know strong community feeling, and my I have a stronger you know, community ca- connection in New York than. Uh, to my local uh, Detroit Jewish community. And yeah, I maintained that for years, mostly through social media, but uh, yeah, I, I assume if you stay there long-term, you, you know, your Jewish identity will have to transform to uh, the local Australian community. It'd be difficult to uh, you know, maintain a, your Jewish identity, just connected to a foreign uh, community that you used to be part of. Or social media, however. Oh right, I would I would participate in the Sydney Jewish community, which I'm I'm doing, and I feel very comfortable here. So, yeah, you, you, every every Jewish community has its own dynamics. Every synagogue, like some synagogues, are fairly peaceful places. Other synagogues are just very difficult synagogues. You know, filled with challenging personalities and factions and, and constant conflict. And so, Sydney is a really peaceful community. And just like there, there are peaceful synagogues, other synagogues are just constantly divided up by controversy. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's also depend on the area because we talked about it so much. You know, like, God forbid, uh, like, you know, the topic of anti-Semitism basically dominates all conversations these days on Judaism. Um, is there security there, like in America? Or, yes. or is it more? Yes, ever since 9-11, they've had very strong security. So I remember I went to a Hanukkah event that, that attracted 100, 150 Jews last year, and there are at least four security guards there. Well, I mean, in Sydney. Yeah, that's what I said. Last year, when I was in Sydney, I went to a Hanukkah event in a public park, and there were at least four security guards there for for this event. So did someone, if you're new in town, did uh, someone have to uh, like clear you by security? Or yes. was the young or, or you? Yes, yes. If you're, to be like, guy's okay with us. No, if you're if you're ever new in town, pretty much anywhere in the world, you need to register in advance at a, the synagogue you plan to attend. You need to provide identification. They need to be able to check you out, and that's that's true in Australia. That's true in in England. It's been true particularly ever since nine eleven. So after nine eleven, security protocols in in Australia, in England, in, in France, and other European nations became much more strict at synagogues. So it came out of nowhere. I mean, I, I don't know how much of your personal details you're sharing. You're like, uh, you're three months in Australia, like uh, business or, you know, Church of Entropy was asking me if you were, you know, because when you went the last time, people were suspect that maybe you're not coming back. You had even hinted that you're not coming back. Um are you still uh, figuring these things out for yourself or do you have set plans that are I solid? Think I, I'm, I'm still figuring things out for myself. I, I, I plan to return to Los Angeles right now, but I, mean, I really love it here. 
on the other hand, I really love it in, in LA. It's just, I spent 90% of my life in California. So this is, this is like new and fresh and exciting and different. And so I'm probably you know, slopping over a lot more with, you know, how happy I am to be here than I do when I'm, I'm in LA and because I've, I've lived in, in LA for the last 28 years. So it's, you know, it's, I, I like it there, but there aren't a whole lot of new experiences uh, compared to what I get to have here. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our relationship is more almost completely ideas based and, and presumably neither me or you gets to talk about what we talk about in terms of, you know, IRL almost ever, like you mentioned yeah. all the time, like no, no one has time or would have interest in, in these subjects or, or, you know, like in Jewish culture, there's kind of uh, thought leaders or rabbis or you know, like, well, why are you talking about it? Just listen to what this thought leader has to say about it. Um, you know, so maybe our relation persists because we continue to uh, find the same things interesting to uh, talk about, but you might move on in a new chapter in your life, you know, like God forbid, uh, you know, if you had a pornography phase, producer's phase, writing, I mean, hopefully, you know, I, I was joking that maybe you're going to write a book over your few months there. But, uh, you know, you could see that certain chapters close and then the relationships, uh, you might be built upon the temporary, you know, what are permanent about our personality and what's temporary. And a lot of the temporary things are activity-based. A lot of our associations and friends are activity-based. And when those activities change, uh, you know, closes the chapter on a lot of those friendships. Yeah, friendship plays a much bigger role in, in Australian life than in American life. So mateship is really what life is all about in Australia. So I, I noticed getting off the plane, when you just first arrive at a place, your observations are often sharper. It, you, you don't have the wisdom or necessarily the information, but your your observations are immediately picking up on something. And so I immediately noticed that compared to Americans, Australians are much more muted in their emotional expressions. They're much less kind of me first, uh, follow my bliss, you know, follow my individual dreams. So America seems a much more individualized society than Australia. And so in Australia, the primary focus is not on the individual and following his bliss. The primary focus for individuals is on their community, on, on their group of mates. So it's kind of Jewish in that sense. In the community comes first, your mates come first. Uh, mateship just meaning male friendship just has a tremendous power. It's just the, the natural default approach of Australians, which comes with downsides. You have considerable corruption because mates, you know, look after other mates. So it's a little bit like uh, ethnic uh, areas of, of America where you have one ethnic group that say dominates a particular town. And, and so then there's a lot of corruption. So mateship comes with some downsides but you do tend to more easily form friendships here and they tend to be much more lasting and they're not primarily based around necessarily activity or achievement. It's, it's just friendship is about the highest value in Australia, which is just wonderful. Was it less uh, competitive in that sense where, you know, New York or LA culture may, may be like, well, I'm about to make it. And then obviously I won't be able to be your friend anymore. I'm just, you know, temporarily your friend because my dreams haven't came true yet. Um, And, you know, relationships are disposable. People are disposable. 
you're always meeting new people and um you know kind of like the lottery is the biggest news you know the 1.6 billion dollar jackpot in america um you know everyone has the chance of hitting the lottery and i would i don't know how you know australia if it's that much uh, different but uh, i presume it's much uh, slower and it's probably less competitive and even you know the the mild chances that american culture puts in front of you like you know you could become a, a star you could become extremely wealthy uh, maybe are less in australia and that makes uh, relationships uh, more meaningful yes that's true people don't tend to drop their friends just when they become more successful when they you know finally sell their novel or, or you know, become ceo or something people don't tend to to drop their friendships nearly, nearly as much here which is refreshing if i did push you and, and you were to write another book over the three months you're there what would it be on a good question and i i have no idea right now so i haven't actually literally put pen to paper i need to go out and get a notepad i i don't know about you but i find that when i handwrite my thoughts ideas feelings observations that they have a whole different quality than when I simply type them up. That they they are more more visceral, more more real, more more honest when I handwrite what I'm seeing, observing, and thinking as opposed to typing. Do you have any experience in this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I haven't written for a few months. I had you know my blog going, and I got you know kind of like it was only getting hits on the chess servers, and then people were complaining to me. Like, you know, why are you posting your blog on the chess server? It doesn't have anything to do with chess. And I thought it was, you know, it probably wasn't the best venue. So I haven't been writing. But, yeah, I have a basic format. Usually I have a, a you know, three-by-five note cards. You know, I even have you know, right next to my crayons, my three-by-five note cards. And I'll start by um, sometimes taking notes or outlining ideas. And then I'll organize it and then I'll, I'll start writing and a lot of times the brainstorming, like, uh, I mean, writing is always difficult in the reviewing and going over, but uh, you understanding what I want to write about, um, then organizing notes on it uh, to when I actually start uh, you know, writing and have a structure of, you know, like the narrative voice is how, you know, what is the logic of me presenting this topic and then how I'm going to organize. But yet yeah, always starts with... Uh, handwritten notes and then a lot of times when i want to inspire my own writing um i'll just take notes on something on, on stuff i'm reading um that uh you know i rarely take notes uh, you know even when i was in school the last time i rarely took notes um but uh you know if i want to write about something i'll take uh handwritten notes i think uh george well a lot of other great stylists they they handwrite their, their work and then type it up and so I think when you handwrite, you're much more careful in, in the words you use. You don't just cover up by you know, pouring out a bunch of words. It's, it's a lot easier to do when you're, when you're typing. So Lib Medley says there's a particular critic who says he can tell whether someone wrote something on a, on a computer or, or on a <laughs> handwrite it. So do you feel like you can tell whether something was written on a computer or handwriting? Um, well, I would assume people go through a process like I'm talking about where, you know, it starts with notes. I'm I'm not sure, you know, if anybody these days, uh, like, cause I grew up with word processing that, uh, I, w I wouldn't even think about writing something 
um, on paper and then transcribing it through a computer as opposed to my mother. I mean, she had a secretary, she wrote everything and had a secretary that, you know, that was paid to, uh, transcribe it. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're a little bit older than me, so you, maybe you spent your early adult years uh, before the word processor. Uh, but yes, oh, I, I, I learned to type by about age, uh, about age eight, I, I think, because, Typewriter or word processing? Type, typewriter. There, there were word processors in the 1970s. So I would I would have an assignment from my father to read 40 pages of some dense work of Christian apologetics and then type a one-page summary. And so that's effect, effectively how I learned to touch type. And so I've always, in the past few years, I, I've always spent a lot of time handwriting things. And then if if it's important, I will then type it up. So I'll, I'll handwrite notes from a 12-step meeting or a lecture that I attend. And then if I want to memorialize it and keep it, then I'll, I'll type it up. So I think it's important both to handwrite and then to type it so that it stays with you. Yeah, I, I only handwrite notes or, uh, you know, sometimes we'll copy out quotes. But uh, you know, by the time I'm getting ready to write something, it's already you know, inward processing. And like I remember typewriters. But uh, I think already when I was in junior high school, uh, you know, I had word processing. So I grew up on word processing and, uh, you know, it just makes more sense to, you know, like, why would you write, uh, you know, when, when you could just use word processing, you know, for all, like the editing or, or waste and, and various things. But, yeah, there's something, uh, you know, I'll call magical, but, uh, you know, more real about writing with your hand than typing in the computer. So I'm trying to pay a little bit of attention to this Kyrie Irving story and uh, the stuff about the the black Hebrew Israelites. And it just all seems so low IQ, just like with the many of the, the Kanye West observations that I just find it hard to maintain any focus. It, for me, it's a little bit like the conspiracy theories about Donald Trump and Russia and how Russia rigged, distorted the 2016 elections. When, when I read these articles, I start to get a headache. And when I read the theories of these black Hebrew Israelites, again, it just seems so stupid that I have a hard time maintaining any concentration. So have you paid any attention to Kyrie Irving? Well, one thing that jumps out at me in this controversy is like how the world is just coming down on him like a, a ton of bricks. If I think if I was just not involved in this story at all, I'd be experiencing emotionally more and more sympathy for Kyrie Irving because you have the NBA commissioner who's Jewish going after him. You have his basketball team suspending him without pay. He's being berated by by everybody in power. He's he's just being taken to the cleaners. The, the media is after him. There's zero sympathy shown for him publicly. And so this overwhelming onslaught against Kyrie Irving even even as someone who happily publicly identifies as Jewish, I have to admit I'm emotionally, you know, much more sympathetic to Kyrie because he's just getting the the heck beaten out of him by everybody in power. There's no sympathy shown for, for Kyrie Irving, and the stuff that he tweeted. He made one tweet about some moronic, you know, lie, low IQ black Hebrew Israelite conspiracy theory. The, the response to Kyrie Irving seems disproportionate. Have you paid any attention to this controversy? Yeah, and the, I mean, God forbid. Uh, yeah, I'm following pretty closely. I watched all his uh, interviews and like 
you know, I've been seeing all the major reports and, uh, you know, I filed the Jewish papers and they're all on it. And, you know, God forbid, you know, it's like clown world where, where, uh, the lies, you know, like people started believing their own propaganda and, you know, there's a cognitive dissonance to, yeah, I was talking to Charles Moskowitz and, and he just couldn't accept. We, we, he talked to this guy, Henry Herskovitz, who's actually in uh, Michigan, University of Michigan. He's been protesting his own synagogue for 20 years. And he won a state Supreme uh, Court case. And, uh, you know, the guy, Jim Rizzoli, the, the infamous uh, revisionist, uh, spoke with uh, Herskovitz. And Herskovitz is also a revisionist uh, now. And then, you know, he set up a debate between him and Moskowitz. And, and uh, you know, Herskovitz made the point that, you know, like anti-Semitism doesn't come out of anywhere. The cause of anti-Semitism is Jewish behavior. And, and like generally, I didn't agree with, you know, Herskovitz on, on most of his points. But I did agree that anti-Semitism is caused largely by Jewish behavior. And, uh, you know, it's like Kevin McDonald and group conflict. And I don't think Jews agree with that. I, in fact, I don't think any Jews agree with that. And, uh, you know, Charles Moskowitz, we argued for like an hour. And, uh, and, and you know, he's kind of basically like calling me an anti-Semite because, like, I accept that uh, Jewish behavior is the, is the cause of anti-Semitism. But, I mean, relating that to the Kyrie Irving, I, I think that's probably a lot of Jews do feel like that, even, you know, across the board from Orthodox to uh, secular and then they well, you know that there's a phenomenon of anti-Semitism. God forbid, you know, the, the Holocaust happened, and uh, you know, there's rising anti-Semitism. But uh, if you don't accept that it's caused by our behavior, um, you have to pin it on something else. And then you think, you know, God forbid, like Hitler or propaganda. And usually, the reason think well because prominent people are saying bad things about us, and uh, you know, the masses are just. Uh, you know, believing, you know, probably because like hidden fear about Christianity or uh, you'll call institutional anti-Semitism, where like your average Jew kind of fears that the Goyim are going to turn against us for no reason at all, other than you know, one person making ridiculous comments. And I don't know if you agree with my perception, but that it's pretty rare that you meet a Jew who agrees that anti-Semitism is caused by our bad behavior. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a universal human response that nobody wants to think that they as individuals or they as a group have anything to do with negative reactions to them. And it's not true. I am the primary cause of most of my own troubles. And for, for blacks in America or Mexicans in America or Jews in America, we are the primary cause of most of our own troubles. And it really removes power and a sense of agency from people to ha have this perspective that you know, we are not primarily responsible for, for our problems or for, for how other people see us. We have a profound effect on, on how other people see us. And the, the Kyrie Irving response just seems disproportionate. Have you been able to pay any attention to uh, Black well, that's Yeah, I've been following Black Hebrews likes for decades now. And like I was in kind of the music business i knew a lot of rappers and we talk about that too but i was just saying that the jewish response seems to make sense with that understanding that most jews think that anti-semitism 
has no logical basis. So the most likely reason they attach to it is influencers being loose with their mouth. So if they could, you know, nip it in the bud and, uh, you know, God forbid, I think there's also the dissonance where, you know, like me and you and a lot of Orthodox Jews, uh, you'll realize that, God forbid, like we suffer the worst at the hand of African-Americans, especially in the violence and crime reign. And, and even though most organizations focus on white anti-Semitism, uh, you know, there's the reality that we're getting beat up mostly uh, by blacks. And, uh, you know, so if you have that response, there's no rational reason for a black to beat up a Jew except for, you know, Kanye West and Kyrie Irving, you know, with their loose mouth. And so I, I I would say that's the psychoanalysis of the reaction that we see. I don't know if you're agreeing with the, you're just kind of the logical reaction of Jews to act in what we would call illogical, but uh, you're saying that is the greater logic of the Jewish people and organizations, and that's why we're seeing the reaction we're seeing. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about uh, Kanye a couple of weeks ago, you thought he was going to come through it largely un unscathed. And now he seems to have taken a bath, has like, lost something like a, a billion dollars in just a, a couple of days. And I, I'm not familiar with him saying anything explicitly publicly anti-Jewish in the, the past uh, 10 days. So ha have you changed your mind at all about uh, Kanye's direction? Yeah, I, I was very surprised because, you know, Adidas, uh, I mean, he was extremely profitable for him. Like Adidas is losing hundreds of millions of dollars after cutting ties with him. Like I, I was I was surprised that uh, they would drop him like then take such a huge financial uh, loss. And I, I think he is back on Twitter and he's still he's been making uh, undertones of comments, not direct. Uh, and, uh, you know, he made a comment that. Uh, you know, it is an anti-Semite just another another word for the N-word? And uh, Twitter deleted that. But he, uh, you know, wow. has been... Uh, wow, Twitter deleted just saying, is an anti-Semite another... Wow, that's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, he has been back, and he has been continuing his, uh, his comments. And uh, I think he's probably going to continue. Like, and saying the difference, like, between like alt writers, you know, like Richard Spencer, you know, went to a school and he says it was like ten percent Jewish, and you know he was Gottfried was one of his advisors, and and he probably knows thousands of Jews. Um, a lot of the alt writers, you know, like uh, Adam Green, um, hardly knows any Jews. Like like I'm one of the few Jews he knows, and we don't even know each other. We just speak online. A lot of the people on the alt right, white people from red areas, don't really know any Jews. And I would bet that Kanye and Kyrie, probably the majority of the white people they know are Jews. You know, from like I mentioned, urban areas that uh, Los Angeles or uh, New York, uh, Chicago, most urban places in America, Jews make up about a quarter, sometimes higher, of all the white people. And uh, you, you know, so Kyrie and Kanye are kind of our guys. And obviously, Kyrie has ninety million dollars. He could you know, not continue to play basketball, who knows what, what he would do. But, I mean, he's somewhat our guy, and it's probably like Kanye, where, where he's basically saying, like, every guy in charge of him is a Jew. And, like, you're saying, like, my 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 uh, controversial praising is, uh, you know, Jews 
as a managerial class. And, uh, you know, certainly among, among blacks, maybe among whites in rural areas, the direct management is, uh, isn't as much, but, uh, you know, for someone like Kyrie and Kanye, they're our guy. We're the ones making the majority of money off of them. And, uh, you know, we probably comprise like 90% of, uh, their management. So, you know, it's unclear to go after so hard, so to say, our guy. And also like, you also, I always, always have this problem. Charles Moskowitz, uh, and I think Jews in general, of uh, you know, recognizing levels of anti-Semitism. You know, like God forbid, like everything's literally Hitler and Nazis, and uh, you know, so Kyrie's anti-Semitism is pretty minor. You know, it's almost nothing. You know, really, yes. he just shared a movie. He even said he didn't share you know the the beliefs that were considered anti-Semitic, but he thought there were some interesting things. And if you want to talk about you know, my sympathy towards uh, black Israelites, you know, we, we could talk about that, but it was, it was, you know, from like a one to a hundred or, you know, one to 10 anti-Semitism, I would put uh, Kyrie at like a two and I would put Kanye at less than a five, like a compare, you know, saying, cause like, he's not, uh, you know, he's really just complaining about his own personal uh, Jewish management besides for the one death con comment. And, of the talking points of like the alt-right of actual policy or even someone like E. Michael Jones and, or, or, you know, how you'd rank it, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, the Daily Show, uh, even Kanye West is, you know, I, I would just put like a four or five. Yeah. And we're about... acting to him like he's Hitler. I mean, like, God forbid the reaction is like, we put all our resources and then also like, you know, God forbid, like I was arguing with Charles Moskowitz and, I mean, because he talks openly, but I mean, Charles Moskowitz kind of, you know, kind of sounds like the people I go to synagogue with, modern Orthodox and like, so the Holocaust, you know, saying like, well, America saved the Jews for the Holocaust. It's like, well, no, you didn't. You know, like you did it for your own selfish reasons. You didn't really care about the Jews. In fact, you didn't do enough for the Jews. And so with like the censorship, it's saying, well, like we censored these guys because the Jews complained. And then you say, like, no, you're not doing enough for anti-Semitism. You didn't censor them because uh, we complained. You censored them because it benefited you, them yourself or, or these various reasons. And, uh, you know, that's why it enters a clown role. Like if Elon Musk or anyone is saying, like, no, like, I clearly censored these guys because the Jewish lobby, uh, you know, told me to. And then here, here, uh, you know, it's, it's never enough. And then, uh, you know, there's never, like, a thank you. And it's like, okay, if we're coming after Kanye for, like, a four uh you know god forbid and have have you investigated black hebrew israelites at all i mean some of them are quite dangerous without a doubt some of them are 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 a threat to society i i've been to events and and you can just feel the the danger in the air now their belief system just seems nuts have you looked into black hebrew israelites yeah i I have books on their origins i've probably spoken over 100 hours maybe even more, maybe even more with black israelites uh you know rastafarians when i was in new york um some of them you know like would even uh um set up uh you know selling books on street corners anti-semitic literature including uh the protocols and also in the music business um you know there's a large number uh, you know in entertainment and music there's a large number of various levels of Israelites. And I'm not sure they're any 
I'm not sure they're necessarily dangerous. They're like angry. They might be you know dangerous people. Like a lot of them, you know, God forbid, in like Metro Detroit, one out of five African Americans, uh, you know, is uh, you've been in, is is ex felon. So you you're just more dangerous than um, your average African American, uh, you know, adult male. Um, but uh, you know, actually, they, they they're kind of like Jehovah's Witness. That once you start talking with them, like you could open up the Bible and they just kind of like, you know they, they're like Ashkenazic Jews in that way, except they're you know big black guys where you might fear their violence more. Uh, but uh, not, I've never found them violent. They just kind of like yelling and uh, debating in that style. But it seems quite a, a low IQ operation. It doesn't seem to be attracting the, the best and the brightest. Um, I'm not sure. I think it attracts. Though I think it actually attracts those who like to read, because most most of the um, mo- most of the black Israelites like to read, and I I, I mean God forbid, uh, to, you know, to make a negative stereotype, I would say that probably puts them in the, among the more intelligent and urban blacks, just that they enjoy reading. Right. Um, but but if you're comparing them to the you know intellectual level of uh, you know, you know like I mentioned the 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 african-american convert to judaism that reads from the torah um you know said last year he read 50 books which he considers average for um an ashkenazic jew to read 50 books a year one a week and uh you know i probably read as much as a book a day you know high level ashkenazic jews read much more than one book a week as opposed to americans in totality not just african-americans read an average of two or three books a year and uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if African Americans are below the American average, and if uh, you know, Hebrew Israelites are actually above the national average, but they're not, you know, like uh, you know, the one book a week necessarily. So about uh, twenty years ago, or so, no, almost forty years ago, Israel imported one hundred twenty thousand Ethiopian Jews, and uh, some of them have assimilated into Israel. But you would never mistake a, a Falashian Ethiopian synagogue in Israel for Nashkenazi or Sephardic synagogue. So, by and large, Falashians in Israel seem to be a separate community, and they seem to have many of the same uh, social and criminal problems that uh, many American blacks have. So, they're still largely on the margins in Israel, though some of the you know, some some members of their community have assimilated and become quite successful. Have you had any thoughts about Palestinian Jews? Yeah, I mean, yeah, even there's a handful here in Metro Detroit. Um, sometimes Jewish organizations will bring bring them in. Yeah, I was in Israel. Like, they generally serve in the army, and uh, you live somewhat segregated. I, I was arguing with a you know, someone in London about that, and they're saying, like, you know, they don't accept the Ethiopians because Israel's racist. And I'm saying, well, that's part of it, although I think the Jesus factor is bigger. And also with Hebrew Israelites in, like, Kanye West that, uh, you know, saying, like, oh, you you know, God forbid you can't be Jewish because you're black uh, might be part of it. But I actually think the Jesus is more part of it and say, like, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you're not really... Uh, you, you're Jewish, and almost all Hebrew Israelites are somewhat a form of Christianity. They accept and believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and also a lot of Falashian Ethiopian 
Jews also you know, have some hybrid form of Christianity. They might even have adopted like wearing tzitzis and putting on tefillin, uh, but a large amount of them still believe in Jesus. And I'm not sure if you agree with me on that point, that uh, you know, in terms of acceptance among the Jews, that the belief in Jesus is worse than, uh, than you know, God forbid, being black. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, belief in Jesus is going to just get a, a huge, <laughs> a huge negative reaction from Jews. And, and so anyone who even flirts with that is going to be exiled from 99% of synagogues. Well, I mean, once they're accepted into Israel, so I don't know the numbers, but if you say like half of Ethiopian Jews in Israel believe in Jesus, they still, so you know, it's kind of like Russians because at this point, Israel identity has been watered down. So you already have, uh, you know, upward to half a million, maybe more, uh, even a million non-Jewish Russians in Israel. So if you have tens of thousands of uh, non-Jewish Ethiopians, Israel somewhat of modern society that could uh, assimilate them. Um, I have passion, you know, compassion for African-Americans. I remember, you know, Malcolm X, Spike Lee's with Denzel Washington came out when I was young, and I I like that movie. And the concept of being robbed of your identity, not knowing who you are, and you were just looking, you know, God forbid, your ancestors were taken from Africa and brought here as slaves, and there's no continuity in identity. Uh, You were given different names and raised in a different culture and uh, brought to speak a different language. And then to make some sort of calculation that they think that they were Jews. And I mean, generally I, I have done quite a bit of research and I think that there is some truth to black Israelism. Um, you know, uh, Michelle Obama's cousin, uh, Rabbi Umfami, who uh, there's some evidence of Hebrew names, but uh, I, I would guess the percentage is very small, you know, at most about uh, 2% that, uh, you know, saying there were Jewish tribes in Africa. There likely were Jewish tribes that were defeated and sold into slavery, although there's no direct record. Uh, but to assume that it's possible that some African-Americans are slaves. And then there's always the bigger question of, you know, the suffering sympathy. And like, well, who has suffered worse, African-Americans or Jews? And, you know, I think generally, objectively, most people think the African-Americans suffered worse. And like, you know, there's the period of the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, in that sense, the, the, you know, the, the actually being killed uh, was possibly worse suffering than most African-Americans, but certainly in America, African-Americans have suffered worse. And this kind of concept, uh, you know, like you're a Jew because you suffer, there is some sort of element to it. And I think that, you know, it's intrinsically, uh, you know, like the martyr complex of, you know, Jews. And I think like you, even you as a convert, you're saying, well, what do you have to do to be accepted? Like, well, you're, you didn't suffer. You're like, I'm a Jew and my ancestors suffer. You know, I'm a Jew without exception as you know, you as a convert, you know, you have to, you know, be a martyr to prove that you're a Jew. You know, God forbid when your ancestors died in the Holocaust, then you become a real Jew. And so that's somewhat a dangerous level of thinking, but gets into this like uh 
suffering competition between African Americans and Jews. And so African Americans will just identify that level like, well, you know, like I'm Jewish and to use that as an identity. And, you know, it's tough to argue with because I've made this argument many times that Jews in America do better with Judaism as a voluntary identity that I'm an American citizen, there's no restriction on my citizenship, and I'm a Jew by choice. And uh, African-Americans, if they want to be a Jew by choice, they don't need our approval. And, uh, you know, for that level that, uh, you know, I said, like, no, we're really a Jew, and they're they're not, it's uh, better for Jews in America to not have, you know, some sort of official declaration of who's a Jew or not. And I think that Jews, even Orthodox Jews 50, 70 years ago, probably understood that better than today. And, uh, you know, now, um, you know, possibly, you know, being drunk off our own power, we want to, uh, you know, exclude people or say, like, you can't just call yourself a Jew. You're not really a Jew. And then the question of, well, what are the actual benefits of calling yourself a Jew? You know, you're just a member of a voluntary community. Yeah, um, I, I want to take a two-minute break. I was wondering if you can hold down the show. Perhaps you can talk about this book you're reading by Whitney Webb, One Nation Under Blackmail, The Sword Union Between Intelligence and Crime That Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I bought those uh, books. I saw Whitney Webb on uh, – you take the break. i ramble a few right, minutes. Thanks. On, on, I had seen Whitney Webb a few years ago. She was on Adam Green, I think, uh, Ryan Dawson, and she was – you, you know, somewhat a subject matter, God forbid, in Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, connections, but she also had other areas of uh, expertise, and she actually had pretty detailed knowledge, you know, maybe even better than Ryan Dawson level, uh, you know, like names, business transactions, uh, dates, especially related to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, so she finally came out with her book, and she she actually interviewed uh, some of the Epstein um, a few years ago before he got, uh, um, uh, you know, indicted and, and then, you know, God forbid, suicided, that uh, she had interviewed a farmer and a few of uh, the women that claimed that uh, they were abused by Epstein. And so, you know, it's tough to know her background. She was not even in America. Uh, but, you know, she was doing this Epstein stuff before Epstein, uh, you know, when she was encouraging them to press charges against Epstein. Um but yeah, she has this like magnum opus, thousand-page book, and uh, you know, so she was on Patrick Ben David, like the Iranian uh, dissident uh, business investor, uh, Vault Entertainment. Um, you know that I, I've seen occasionally. I guess he's a pretty big name in podcasting, so he interviewed her, and uh, that came up in my feed, and I watched that, and then uh, you know I was impressed with the interview, uh, you know the names and the detail, and I bought the book. God forbid. One of the reasons I, w- I, w- I wanted to know about Epstein is because, you know, here in Michigan, um, Wexner, you know, basically has his fingerprints on everything that, uh, you know, like uh, Wexner has these training things, uh, the, the, you know, the Reform Rabinet uh, Training Institute in, in Ohio, uh, Wexner is their biggest donor. Um, I think uh, the Shulm Hartman Institute, these Israeli, these various training institutes, and, uh, you know, like almost half the non-Orthodox rabbis in Metro Detroit, you know, like ha- have had Wexner training 
and also the federation leaders and so i, I was curious uh, you know the details that you don't that uh, you don't have uh, that aren't that public and, and she had you know, a lot of like mafia cia intelligence that she laid out in a pretty clear manner going back uh, to roy Cohn and uh you, you know, like cia operations and uh um the I- iranian uh um i forget the the you know the, the weapon transfers and some of the names uh going back decades to the rise of robert maxwell you know who killed robert maxwell how did he make all his money what were his connections was he a Mossad agent um so the iran contra so you know god forbid um like a don kasoji who I guess is related to the Kasoji that was murdered, but he was a uh, you know, weapons dealer, uh, Saudi Arabia that was in Iran-Contra and also worked with Mossad. And uh, all, all these connections with Maxwell and uh, Epstein. And uh, you know, so her perspective, she doesn't write about the sex crimes. She's writing about the financial crimes. And that, that was my perspective that uh, you know, Epstein was just a pervert, but he was a financial criminal. And, uh, there's not much information on it so you know it's a very detailed uh book and and like you know god forbid she doesn't mention the word jewish that often except in relation to uh epstein and the jewish charities that he funds but like a lot of the na- and, and she talks about Mossad agents and she says she's not anti-semitic and, and you know saying that uh look at these people as individual bad people but uh to a certain extent they get away with it by donating charities and uh you know controlling their names and i could see that you know within the jewish community like god forbid that uh you know that jeffrey epstein's a unique jewish criminal and through these charity networks and, and it's unclear that uh you know like epstein had the power of attorney for wexner for maybe even a decade so like what activities were wexner's or epstein's it's hard to uh separate that and uh you know the level of Wexner getting his connection and then uh you know New York and, and and Trump and Bill Gates and she shows evidence that Bill Gates was involved with Epstein going back decades and, and Donald Trump that there's some evidence that possibly Epstein was even involved in uh introducing uh Trump to uh, Melania Trump and uh you know God forbid like Josh Kushner uh, Jared Kushner's brother is now a millionaire you know married a you know so to say convert to Judaism, uh, Klaus, who, who was a Victoria's Secret model. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's pretty, you know, I mean, to me it's not surprising because I've studied a lot of history, and to my perspective it's the, the way things have always worked, and I believe in karma, that I, I don't think people could uh, be bad or evil and uh, get away with it, although, you know, sometimes they might get away with, uh, you know, certain things for decades or in rare cases, even uh, over a lifetime. Um, okay. But uh, let, let, let me jump in. Uh, if you were a billionaire, which which philanthropies would you donate to? Have you ever thought about that? Well, you know, I mentioned that book, um, you know, by uh, Leela Corwin Berman, uh, the Jewish philanthropic complex. So, tax law necessitates or it doesn't necessitate but you get a much cheaper rate if you set up a foundation and and uh and then the foundation so i mean you're limited to like so i donate charity mostly to individuals almost all my charity 
goes to individuals. I give almost nothing to uh, um, organizations, but I take the, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, my income's low enough where I take the general deduction. If I had a higher income and wasn't going to take the standard deduction, um, I would not get any tax credit for my donations to individuals, and therefore I would be much more likely to donate towards organizations. And then, um, you know, the level of how tax law and benefiting, gaining power through organizations, like if I had enough money to rise in power by being a regular donor to a yeshiva, a synagogue, a Jewish federation, it's kind of like a quid pro quo of, you know, pay to play basically. And, you know, she covers and, you know, her book Clinton was yeah, not the first, but the biggest basically pay to play quid pro quo uh, politician. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you've thought about that or ever had enough money or looked at your taxes and you just do a standard deduction that if you had a larger sum of money, um, you know, that be, being taxes, and then if you would strategically donate to some sort of pay-to-play organization that uh, you know, basically gives you access based on the amount of donation. So, uh, you know, I would like to donate to individuals, but, uh, you, know, you know, if I hit a tax lawyer and I started seeing like one year that uh, like literally, um, you know, could be like 50 percent that, uh, you know, because I wouldn't get a tax deduction and I would be able to donate 50 percent more charity if I didn't donate to individuals, but donated to organizations. But uh, what about in, in terms of Sadaka priorities, just in terms of, of moral issues, where would you where would you put your emphasis? I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I would want to primarily donate to schools, Jewish schools, to schools that would treat kids humanely, right? They were abusing the children. But anything that would promote Jewish education, I think that would be my priority. How about for you? I mean, I don't necessarily have desires for huge amounts of money. No, I, I would prefer to donate to individuals, and that might mean helping them out with schools. Uh, but I'm not an institutional person. You know, like I think corruption is the norm, and you know, even Jewish schools, there'd be a lot of corruption. There'd be other donors that are bigger than you, and it'd be kind of a pay-for-play system. So I mean, if you set up like the Luke Ford Scholarship Foundation so that uh, two or three kids could, uh, you know, God forbid, like <laughs> like Jewish tuition in Los Angeles is so high, like, you know, be $100,000 a year for like three kids to go, uh, you, know, you know, to Jewish school on scholarship versus if you just donated straight to the school to let them do um, whatever they wanted uh, with the money or if you wanted to garner influence within the school in return for your donation and you know try to make some sort of direction in the Jewish community and uh, you know then you would get pushback and, and it would kind of uh, you'll be the you know, you know God forbid the play per, pay for play system that I dislike so much okay David I think I'm going to move on any final words for today yeah nice talking um, you know good luck in Australia and uh you know, you know, not to push you to do something that you don't want, but uh, you know, maybe it's a sign for you to uh, write your write your book if you have uh, extra time there. 
and uh, you know, so I'll check in your streams and hope everything's going good. Okay, thanks, David. Uh, great to talk to you. All right, let me play a little bit more here. Mickey Cow's talking with Robert Wright. And in this kind of futuristic ghetto and uh, loses himself. In talking about Ready Player One. So ha have you watched this new movie? In this immersive reality, uh, you know, spends a lot of his time in this immersive reality where you, you know, what would you add to that? Right. Uh, nothing. It, it, it was, it's, um, and, it, you know, the immersive reality is, is founded by an eccentric founder who's fired his co-partner. So it's all very realistic in that sense. Uh, the, I guess I, what, the main thing, the main things I had to say, well, the main thing I had to say is, uh, these people, even though they're in this complete alternate reality, they're still prisoners of all the impulses and needs of the current reality, i.e., especially of evolutionary psychology. So they want to have sex, they feel pride, they feel anger, they feel all the emotions that ordinary people who aren't in the metaverse feel. And it just seems to me that's a very limited idea of the metaverse. Why really? does what would why, you in the metaverse? Why did, well, why couldn't you have a metaverse? Let's call it the Bobaverse, Bob. Okay, where people try to exude calm and exhibit Buddhist values of cognitive empathy and mindfulness. And they're rewarded for that, as opposed to rewarded for engaging in a macho road race where they kill as many people as possible, uh, for example. Uh, uh, and, 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 and success in the Bobiverse would then have a feedback effect on real life, and the people would become more like Bob, more better people, calmer people, more empath cognitively empathetic people. Just like uh, and uh, And why couldn't you do that? Or, why, you know, why couldn't, uh, you know, well, that's, that, for starters, why, why, why is it, why does everything have to be? It was too much the same as the current universe. It wasn't okay, same. but I would qualify what you said. So, so, yeah, I saw All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix. I thought it was a great film. Before I saw the film, I was blown away by this highly critical review by someone who did not seem to be Jewish, saying that the, the movie was set up to try to minimize Germany's crimes during World War II. And so they criticized this new version 2022 version of the classic novel or quiet on the Western front. They, they criticized it for showing a room full of dead people who've been killed by gas. Right. And, and so they go through all these different criticisms of the film that it's, it's too sympathetic to the Germans, that it shows too much empathy for, for German suffering, that it, it's trying to do some kind of moral equivalence between the suffering of Germans during World War One and uh, the Holocaust, and I didn't see that at all. I thought it was a compelling film. So, anyone else with any thoughts on "All Quiet on the Western Front"? David says I prefer to help individuals I have a personal relationship with, not random people. I never give money to homeless. Okay, I, I give money to various charities, but I never want to encourage the asking for, for handouts. So David says, I'd hook up individuals, not organizations. <laughs> Felicia says, I'll give you an account number to wire to. Yeah, Jewish charities have gotten many people through hard times. So there are a lot of incredibly effective Jewish charities doing, doing good work. Did I ask the pull-up Sheila if I could squeeze her biceps? No, I didn't. She was very attractive, but she had a boyfriend or brother or family surrounding her. Just... Didn't seem appropriate. Okay, uh, Glib Medley says that my my sound quality is not horrible, but at least I'm not going to be muting at odd times, like with my regular home, with my regular like $700 home audio setup that I don't have with me today, but uh, does occasionally have that that muting quality. It's not terrible. I reckon you'll mute less, so it evens out. 
Do Orthodox Aussies roll on Shabbos? No, they do not. But it's not Shabbos here. It's Sunday morning. We all know an Eskimo when we see one. Pull-ups get harder for us taller, older men. Yeah, but I, I saw a bloke my age, but he may have been shorter. He was just reeling off the pull-ups. I was so impressed. Anglicans have zero loyalty to England. I think that would vary. Kanye folded like a cheap camera. He apologized verbally and in writing. He paid $500,000. He lost several contracts. He's still getting suspended. I would not be surprised if he gets circumcised. Press one if you want 40 to do a salad stream. So what is a salad stream? What on earth would you do on a salad stream? Like if they, they prepare salad for me, I will gladly eat it because I know I need to eat more salad. I just don't want the aggravation of shopping and preparing salad for myself. Wasn't Russia supposed to run out of food in two days, like six months ago? Yeah, that didn't happen. What did Kyrie Irving do that was wrong? He linked to a documentary, which is based on a book, and it all seems so low IQ. It's it's called uh, Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America. So that's the movie. It's based on a black Hebrew Israelite, the same name says that uh, black Hebrew Israelites are the true descendants of the biblical Israelites. Well, my father would preach sermons about how evangelical Christians are the true Jews. So <laughs> this this uh, comes from my dad. Uh, so what, what accompanies my dad's views and this documentary's views is that the Jews today are not the real Jews. And, that, and this is new to black Hebrew Israelites, that today's Jews have culturally appropriated the religious heritage of black people and then covered it up. I mean, this is such low IQ nonsense. It, it makes my brain hurt. Now, you, you're probably wondering, what does the Anti-Defamation League want us to know? It says the film promotes beliefs common among anti-Semitic and extremist factions of the Black Hebrew Israelite movement. It uh, film deals with historical and genetic arguments about various racial and ethnic groups. I don't believe that the film deals in a sophisticated fashion with these questions. It uh, has claims of a global Jewish conspiracy to oppress and defraud people. And so I'm sure this is very appealing to certain blacks, but most black problems are not the fault of Jews. Most white problems are not the fault of whites, uh, not the fault of Jews, right? Whites are primarily responsible for their own problems. Blacks are primarily responsible for their own problems. Jews are primarily responsible for their own problems. Any free society like the United States your group is primarily responsible for its own problems. I mean, there's just so much opportunity and goodness in the United States. If your group is consistently screwing up, it's not because of America and it's not because of the Jews. So to support his claims, the film quotes from Henry Ford's The International Jew and two fabricated fabricated quotations from Adolf Hitler. It also includes protocols from the uh, quotes from the protocols of the elders of Zion has a long passage of Holocaust denial. It has attacks on Zionism and conspiratorial claims about the Rothschilds. So here are some of the film's claims. Black people are now finding out they are the true lost children of Israel. Hey, can't, can't they do better than this? It's just, it's just so low IQ, so boring, so stupid. But I mean, Kyrie Irving was a guy who was making claims about how the earth is flat. So he's not a rocket scientist. He's a basketball player. So shouldn't you grade people on a curve? 
But right. with AI, nobody ever knows what general principles are inferred. They're only implicit. You just, right. I don't know. I've said more than I know. I'll show that. No, that, that's what, I, that, what you said is exactly what I was thinking. Don't change your word. Don't change a thing, Bob. Um, You're great just the way you are. Exactly. Um, the, other, the, the, the only other thing I have on my list, and I always look at this list, and then after we've done the, ta- done the taping, I, I say, oh, my. We hear a lot about anti-Semitism, says the chat. What is pro-Semitism? That's called philo-Semitism. And you get this from a lot of evangelical Christians, where they just seem to love everything about the Jews. Also from many Chabad Jews, and there, there are certain Jews, the ideology, you should try to love every Jew. But the opposite of anti-Semitism is philo-Semitism. So what's a lo- philo-Albion, right? If you love England, right? You're a lover of everything English. I love everything English except the weather. Oh my God, you forgot to mention that. Anyway, um, is uh, DeSantis and Republican governors and the Democratic mayor of El Paso bust these immigrants all over the country, including these Venezuelans who are a large chunk of the new immigrants coming in at the moment. And, it, and all of a sudden, Biden all of a sudden turns around and starts not letting in the Venezuelans. So the Venezuelans have stopped coming. Obviously, it works. The mayor, as, as Mark Krikorian said, the mayors of these cities, which who are largely Democratic, called the Biden administration and said, what the fuck? Why are you sending me these immigration immigrants? We can't handle them. Stop them at the border. And, and Biden changed. So wait, what so was the was thing Biden did success. that stopped them from coming? Uh, he, he, he somehow, he basically didn't let them in. I don't know if he applied Section 42 to them. That seems like an effective means of pe- keeping people out of your country. I don't, know if, I don't know if he applied Section 42 to them, or he uh, had a remain in Mexico type deal where they can, they can apply for asylum, but they got to do it from Mexico. They're not getting into the United States. Or, or uh, I don't think he detained them. I think he turned them around at the border. And, and when, once people saw that, they stopped coming. Duh. They were asylum seekers? Yeah, well, they're people le- fleeing Venezuela. That, that's a radical change of policy, right? But it's only for one country, yeah. But there's a reason why he... So, Half Galician wants to know, is there an air roof in Sydney? Yes, there is an air roof in Sydney. I'll, I'll post a link in the chat. So, an air roof is a very thin cord that goes around a community that uh, changes the nature of the community in terms of Jewish law and makes it more permissible to carry things on Shabbat, to push a stroller with, with kids in it. So yeah, we, we have an air roof here, got a lot of good things. Uh, Borges might be the most philo-Semitic of the great writers. So didn't he do magical realism? Jorge Luis Borges, right? He was an Argentinian short story writer. He, he proved he can radically change policy if enough Democratic mayors complain to him. Well, what's the which what's, I think is very revealing. What's the rationale of only doing it to one country? They were the ones the mayors were complaining about. Yeah, but, but there's also, there's, there's, there also, is no rationale. It's, it's also the country where inconsistent. It's also a country where we claim there are these genuinely oppressive conditions that they're living under, even though in fact our economic exactly. sanctions are responsible for half. It's of completely the incoherent because there are other countries where it would, should apply. Yeah, yeah, our economic sanctions are responsible for much of the economic trouble in Venezuela. As a result, we get inundated by immigrants from Venezuela. How about we get rid of the sanctions and enforce immigration law and keep, keep illegal immigrants out and essentially reduce the number of legal immigrants to near, nearly zero, unless you have some incredibly compelling skills. So I was talking during my trip to a woman from South Africa, and she initially married a South African, and the way they were able to get uh, American citizenship was that he was a blacksmith, and apparently blacksmiths are in great demand in the United States. So they created a special category to fast track your American citizenship if you're a blacksmith. I didn't realize that we were in such dire need of blacksmiths, but I'm all on board with you know, suffering oppressed white South Africans finding refuge in the United States or Australia. Get rid of Social Security. 
Uh, so he said exactly what the Democrats. Yeah, this is, I think, a very powerful Democratic attack line to attack Republicans for messing with Social Security. And you've got Mike Lee saying that he wants to blow up Social Security. This is a formula for losing. Paul Ryan wanted to completely revamp Social Security. And uh, he was the vice presidential running mate for Mitt Romney. That was a losing campaign in 2012. If, if Republicans get tarred with wanting to blow up Social Security, this will be devastating to their electoral choices and chances. Claim, he said. Well, there are a lot, there are a lot of Republicans that actually do want to save Social Security, but I just can't name any of them. So, Mickey, the... Uh... Here's a question for Bob from TC, Commenter TC. Why do American foreign policy experts on Russia tend to dislike Russia? Well, American experts on China tend to like China. That's a great question. Why do American Russian experts almost universally loathe Russia, while America's China experts seem to almost universally love China? I don't just mean liking or disliking the current regimes in each country. The basic attitude to Russia-Chinese civilization seems very different. Well, a couple of things. First of all, as for leaders, Putin is apparently an asshole. Like most people have had actual experience with him, don't like him. Now, also, Xi Jinping is no peach, but he's a relatively new, you know, Putin, like everyone has actually been over there, journalists, ambassadors, and so on, within the last two decades, it's Putin they've dealt with, they hate him. But then beyond that, you've got the fact that, you know, uh, commercial engagement with China is a, is a deep thing. And so there are a lot of financial interests that would like to foster uh, a certain amount of, uh, you know, congeniality or something. Yeah, just a good good question. Why do our Russian experts here in America have such a visceral loathing for Russia as opposed to our China experts who just have this visceral love for China if they're not on China's payroll? So what the hell is going on with Richard Spencer? Correction from 2000. More evidence of Spencer working for the feds seeps out. There is no smoking gun as yet that Richard Spencer has been turned and is working hand in glove with feds or other shadowy Antifa organizations that seek to police the right-wing criticosphere. However, there is an increasing amount of chatter and circumstantial evidence that points squarely in that direction. Spencer, of course, famously founded the alt-right and even pushed it in a clearly Nazi direction from 2015 to 2018, before mysteriously backtracking around 2019, even to the point of supporting Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. So my position is I don't find Richard Spencer's turn surprising. I don't think you need to account for it by saying he's a a federal agent. I think that uh, ego narcissism, the desire to be edgy, led Spencer to lead the alt-right in a Nazi direction, which was suicidal. And Richard got sick of being a social pariah. And so he wanted to reset himself. And he was increasingly loathed by people of the alt-right. So he needed to find a new home. And he needed to announce that he was going forward in a new direction. So when I quit writing on the porn industry, I started growing a long beard. Now, I didn't do it automatically upon quitting writing on the porn industry, but sometime thereafter, I read an article by Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik on why so many Jewish men wear beards. And it appealed to me, but it appealed to me at a time of transition. I was in a liminal space between making my primary income back in 2007 from writing about the porn industry to trying to find a way forward where I could hold my head high in polite society. And so the the beard was a signifier that I'd made a dramatic change. 
And so I think for Richard Spencer announcing that he was voting for Joe Biden and for Democrats and just be a straight ticket Democrat voter, that this was a dramatic way of saying that he had changed and a way of getting more socially acceptable status. This was also echoed by the actions of those close to Spencer, such as Evan McLaren, the former head of Spencer's National Policy Institute. A recent conversation on Twitter involved... And Half Galician says Anthony Scaramucci turned from Trump to Biden. It's all just personal calculation about what's best. So that's a good point. I read this on Twitter the other day. Notice how people's ideologies never go against their self-interest. I think that's... That's overwhelmingly true. Involving a number of participants, including Antifa authors Shane Burley, Michael Edison Hayden, who is a senior investigative reporter and spokesperson for the SPLC, and Heterodorks, a transsexual podcaster, showed a remarkably sympathetic and knowing attitude to Spencer. After Heterodorks questioned the sincerity of... And Alexander says, so what exactly is the difference between the alt-right and the far-right? So... The alt-right came up as an online movement that was largely about humor and would largely make its points with humor. So it was not didactic. It was not frothing at the mouth. It was not KKK style. It was edgy humor. That was the, the alt-right as opposed to 1.0 white nationalism. So the far right would, would take on you know, Nazi regalia would, would you know, embrace Nazism. The alt-right, until Richard Spencer drove it into the Nazi camp, was, was primarily an online humor movement. Spencer's recent move to the center, Hayden was quick to leap to his defense. The, perhaps the, the best books on the, the rise and fall of the alt-right are by George Hawley. So he's a political scientist, who wrote two books on the alt-right, and he details... Any of the differences between the alt-right and white nationalism 1.0, he makes the point that what, in the final analysis, dooms the alt-right is the same thing that, that doomed white nationalism 1.0, the very poor quality of the people it recruited. So dominantly antisocial people, people with criminal backgrounds, uh, people in low-status positions in society, people with little self-control, and uh, people who can't form lasting bonds with other people and create a cohesive movement. Quote, Heterodorx, Richard Spencer is not a dyed-in-the-wool fascist, as he now portrays himself as someone who has disavowed white nationalism and describes himself as pretty much a liberal on a variety of issues. Do you believe him? Not me. I consider him unreliable. What do I think is more likely? That Richard Spencer is an honest dealer and we should take his words at face value? Or do I think Richard Spencer would say things to provoke responses or sow chaos? Hmm. Hayden, knowing considerably more about Richard and his activism than you do, I would suggest treating the subject with a little more humility. End quote. This is obvious code 4, give our asset a break. Heterodorks then probed a little deeper, drawing a rather terse but spook-like comment from Hayden. Quote. Heterodorks, Michael, it doesn't surprise me at all that you prescribe humility for others. But since you're the expert, do you believe that Richard Spencer is now a moderate, as he claims? Hayden, not talking about this publicly, but you don't know what's going on. End quote. 
Like I said, this is not a smoking gun, but the only way to read this for an intelligent person is that there is clearly some sort of understanding between Spencer and the SPLC and beyond, i.e. the feds. This would explain Spencer's radical ideological U-turn of a couple of years ago, and might even be one of the reasons behind his divorce from his strongly Putinist Russian wife, Nina. There is some evidence that Spencer effectively self-destructed his own marriage. For example, by accusing his wife of having an affair with former comrade Colin Liddell on her frequent trips to Japan. It may also explain his absurd embrace of an Apollonian identity, a clear smokescreen technique to cover the blatant illogicality of his turn on a dime transformation from a Nazi tart to a NATO and Biden supporter. From the conversation quoted, it is clear that the understanding between Spencer and the SPLC slash feds involves them going easy on him. The next logical question to ask, therefore, is what is Spencer giving them in return? Apart from pro-globo homo takes, does it also involve doxing information on the hundreds of dissident right personalities that Spencer has interacted with over the years? It would Okay, let's get some analysis here from Peter Zion. Hey everybody, Peter Zion here, coming to you for one final video from Washington, D.C. Got the White House behind me, so guess who we're going to talk about? The guy who actually lives there now, Joe Biden. <clears throat> now, um, commenting on a sitting president is always dangerous because no matter what I say, I'm going to piss everybody off. So uh, let's just get to it, knowing that that is where this is going to go. Uh, in terms of previous experience, the only president that we have ever had that is kind of in the same league as Biden for actually having a real grown-up job is Barack Obama. Uh, sometime uh, around the fall of Rome, uh, Biden was a legal clerk for about a year and a half, and he hasn't had a real job since. He has been in the Senate since about the time of the Crusades, uh, and so he's seen a lot, but he hasn't really done much of anything except for sit on meetings. Now, the negatives of this are obvious. He's guided more by ideology than most presidents because he really doesn't have a lot of real-world experience. On the flip side, dude knows how to run a meeting. And when you bring that attitude, that sort of, for lack of a better word, wisdom, into a room, it means you realize that you're not going to know everything. And so you're okay with asking questions. You're okay with showing your belly a little bit. And that means, unlike Donald Trump or Barack Obama, Biden is the most engaged president we've had in you know, 13, 14 years. Uh, you can even make the argument that when it comes to shaping a policy, he's even better than Clinton or W. Uh, he's only two years in. I'm not willing to say that he's better or worse than W or Clinton. I think the jury's still out. But he's So Zion places both Barack Obama and... Donald Trump in the bottom 10% or time of American presidents. Clearly better than Obama or Trump, simply because he's willing to use the information that's provided and the tools of state. Now, that doesn't mean that I or any... And Joseph Campbell keeps asking, were Jews involved in the slave trade? Yes. Jews, non-Jews, Arabs, Blacks, all sorts of people were involved in the slave trade. Were Jews plantation owners? Uh, generally speaking, no. So I don't know if there's an individual, I'm sure, you know, Jew or not. But uh, let's say Jews had absolutely nothing to do with the slave trade. It would have gone on just as, as it did go on. Jews were not a necessary component for the slave trade. Anyone have to agree with him. And Jews among themselves effectively ended slavery approximately 2,000 years ago. The Jews ceased ending slaves about uh, 2,000 years ago. I'm simply talking about managerial competence at this point. And in fact, in economic policy, whew, um, mm, say what you will about Trump. He had a number of people on his cabinet, especially in the first year. And Jews owned many slave ships. Yeah, Jews owned slave ships. Non-Jews owned slave ships. Uh, ships that transported opium, right? Some of those ships, I'm sure, were owned by Jews. Some of those ships were owned by non-Jews. Uh, ships that transported valuable medicines. I'm sure some of those ships were owned by Jews. Some were owned by non-Jews. Jews have had a disproportionate 
economic influence over the Western world and a dis disproportionate intellectual influence over the Western world and parts of the Eastern world because they have such high average IQs. Approximately half of all Americans with genius level IQs, meaning IQs over 145, are Ashkenazi Jews. So yes, a group with a higher than average IQ, particularly when that higher than average IQ is verbal IQ, which is the type of IQ that is much more responsible for success in the world as opposed to visual spatial IQ. Yes, they're gonna be disproportionately influential both economically and intellectually that really knew their way around. And say what you will about W, he had some serious leading lights in intellectual heavyweights. Clinton was able to pick people and throw them at problems fairly effectively. And even Obama, while his cabinet was highly ideological and had very little real-world experience, they were all clever people who understand that if you want to get something done, you have to use actually the tools of state. Biden's superior to all of them in that regard and that he understands and trusts in the power of government. But his cabinet is not all that. He really doesn't have anyone on the cabinet who I would consider a leading light in the space that they're supposed to be regulating. But that is not just a negative. There's a positive to that because there's and uh, Max says, Peter Zion is interesting, yet unfortunately he totally supports the worst work takes, such as on Black Lives Matter. I haven't heard Peter Zion talk about Black Lives Matter. I don't associate Peter Zion with woke takes, but I, I may be missing something. He seems fairly non-ideological. <clears throat> he seems politically centrist to me. There's an understanding throughout his cabinet, taking cues from a boss who doesn't claim to know everything. And for the first time since at least the W administration, cabinet ministers are actually reaching out to industry to ask questions. And that degree of humility. And that is important. I mean, you do want people to have some humility. Humility simply means from the, the perspective of the book, 12 Traditions, 12 Steps, 12 and 12 is what we call in 12-step work in AA. It, it makes the argument that humility is respecting reality, that understanding your place in reality. So when you're in reality, you understand there are a million things you don't know. It's a good thing to ask other people for questions. Now, there's a time to lead, right? This is my show. I am leading my show. I am the boss of my show. But other times, the situation's the boss, right? I'm never always the boss. And the boss of this show but plenty of times the situation's the boss. I am in Australia. I just made up my decision, just spur of the moment within, within, within six hours of making up my mind, I was on my way to the airport. Uh, and and situation can you know, have a profound effect on you, right? Here's one way to know if you're an addict, if your compulsions survive any situation. So for example, there may be some jobs where you thrive in, right? If you thrive in certain jobs, you have a history of thriving in certain jobs, in all likelihood, you're not a compulsive underwriter. But if you're underachieving, no matter the job, no matter the situation, then you're very likely to have some sort of underwriting compulsion going on. Uh, some people drink excessively in certain situations, such as when they're in Russia. They, they just find the place so depressing or boring they, they start drinking vodka, right? But when they're outside of those depressing, boring situations, they don't drink to excess. So in all likelihood, you don't have an addiction going on. So some people are situationally addicted, right? In certain relationships, certain situations, certain jobs, they compulsively overuse certain substances or processes. So I think we're talking about varying degrees of dysfunction, right? The most severe type of dysfunction survives all situations, Right? If your use of alcohol 
if your use of sex, pornography, attention-seeking, debting, food, drugs, right? If that survives all situations, then you have a life-threatening addiction going on as an extreme degree of dysfunction. Then a lot of other people, they're only stuck in compulsive, addictive situations, circumstances in certain situations. So that if they move, if they get new friends, if they get a new, new girlfriend, they get a new job, then these crippling, destructive compulsions leave them, right? So the addict, right, that's the most extreme form of dysfunction. Then people who become acting like addicts in certain situations, that's a lesser degree of dysfunction. And then ideally, you're at peace with yourself and other people, and that way you're best situated to adapt to changing circumstances. So sometimes the situation's the boss. Sometimes your addiction is the boss. Sometimes you are the boss in certain circumstances. I am the boss of this show, but something could happen in the next 60 seconds and I might shut down this stream and I might not live stream for another year, right? So I feel right now like I'm the boss of this show, but situations can change and I realize, hey, there are things far more important to me right now than doing live streams. So situations change. You have to change with them you may start spending your time in other directions. So sometimes situation's the boss. Sometimes you're the boss. Sometimes your addiction's the boss. Sometimes your family's the boss. Sometimes your boss is the boss. Sometimes your spouse is the boss. Sometimes your kids are the boss. Sometimes the condition of your car is the boss. ...is something that I think will bode well for what comes for the next two years. That said, I can't say I'm overly impressed with economic policy. I'd probably give that a solid D. Uh, Biden is setting us up for a lot of problems that we're going to pay for over the course of the next 50 years. That's a different topic. But on security policy specifically, the fact that Biden was there when the pyramids were built means that he understands what's going on in the world and the broader context of it. So when he sees the Russians carrying out policies that we have not seen for a very long time, he understands exactly where that leads. And so security policy vis-a-vis the Russians and Ukraine and NATO, you know, I kind of give him a B for most of that. Now, security policy is a narrow subset of foreign... So I would have a strong disagreement with Zion here. I would give Joe Biden an F with regard to Ukraine. I think uh, subsidizing and encouraging, essentially, this war with Russia over Ukraine is a disaster. I, I would give Biden an F with this regard. And I'm not overall super hard on Joe Biden. I don't spend much time talking on Biden. I'd, I'd give Biden overall like a, a C grade or even a B grade for a Democrat. No, no C grade. I'll just give him a, a C. Uh, I thought Trump was a good president because he represented my interests. I don't care how egomaniacal he is. I don't care about his personal foibles. He reduced immigration. He became more assertive with regard to China. He reoriented our trade policy. So he turned back the clock on the Black Lives Matter work activism that was leading to rising rates of crime. He raised real wages and living standards for the least educated Americans. Donald Trump represents my interests. He represents the direction that, that I want America to go in its most important areas, such as immigration policy and trade and policing. So to me, Trump was a great president. No, great is overstating. He was a good, solid president. Policy where I'm less impressed, which is a narrow subset of all the policies that the president is ultimately responsible for. So I do see some hope. I'm not willing to write off Biden like I have the last four at this point. There are reasons to be optimistic. But I think the single biggest one is having a president that doesn't think that he knows everything. And so ask. How are you guys enjoying the new Twitter? Right. So I've been enjoying Elon Musk. 
right? I was, I'm not like Richard Spencer, who thinks that Elon Musk is just a great con man. I'm not a, a believer in Elon Musk. I don't think that he'll necessarily succeed and make it better. He could indeed make it worse. But so far, I'm loving the Elon Musk experiment. I am optimistic that Elon Musk will make Twitter a better, fairer place. Uh, Elon Musk is a deeply flawed individual. He seems to be operating by the seat of his pants. But uh, overall, these are exciting days. So Elon Musk, Donald Trump, both you know, deeply flawed, operating by the seat of their pants, you know, just trying things, just you know, throwing stuff against the wall to see, see what sticks. But to me, both Elon Musk and, and Donald Trump are superior to what came before them. And tries to learn from everybody. I'm going to call that a win. All right, that's it for me. Until next time. Hey everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from an exciting hotel room. It is the 2nd of November and the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates by another three quarters of a percent. So I thought it would be a good idea to give you an idea of why the Fed is doing what it's doing uh, and what that means for all of us. Normally, interest rates are a tool that is used to regulate demand. The idea being that when demand falls, you want to lower interest rates so you can get it back up and get some normal economic activity moving again. And in the case of the United States, most of our demand... Yeah, that's right, Glenn Bentley. I've got tempered optimism about Donald Trump and, and about Elon Musk. I see far more things that I like about Elon Musk's reign with, with regard to Twitter that I, I don't like. At the same time, I want to be in humility and recognize we're, we're dealing with flawed individuals. And every individual has to operate within a situation where there are a ton of other players. There's so many different variables to what's going on with Twitter that I can't possibly be cognizant of. You don't really want to go up against the rest of the world. So if all the other elites and institutions you know, decide to crush Elon Musk and Twitter, then he may well not survive, just as when almost all the elites and America's institutions lined up against Donald Trump that posed significant problems that severely handicapped his presidency. So I try to operate without unnecessarily infuriating people. I understand I will sometimes infuriate people. I try to like dial it down. To, to minimize the amount of infuriation, <laughs> anger that I cause for people so that I can have as much freedom to operate as I possibly can. But, you know, understand I'm operating in situations where a lot of people have influence that I'm not even aware of. And sometimes things get you know, pulled and manipulated behind the scenes. And I only, I'm the last person to catch on with what's happening. Demand is coming from the millennial class, people who are aged in their 20s and their 30s, which is normal. This is the, the age group that normally is buying homes and raising kids and buying uh, cars. Sorry, lost the word there for a second. And in that, this is no atypical period. But when the Federal Reserve looks around the world, they're discovering that the millennials in the United States don't have a lot of peers around the world. There aren't really very many German or Chinese or Japanese or Korean millennials at all. So it's not that the Fed is overly concerned about the current economic conditions with inflation, although they are, but they're really thinking to what happens the next time. Because we have a number of countries who cannot increase interest rates enough to regulate demand because they don't have demand. So if they raise them too high, too fast, or really moderately at all, it will be their last economic expansion. And even before you consider the economic impacts of things like the Ukraine war, this was always going to be the end of the road for a lot of East Asia and Europe. It's just down to the numbers. So when the Federal Reserve is looking at this, they're like, holy crap, this tool will work for us, but it won't. So do you remember the late 70s when we, we suddenly got this surge in interest rates that crushed people? I remember in... in People close to me, they, they bought a house and then they saw another house that they wanted and it was a time of flipping. This was around 1980 and they thought, oh, we'll flip the first house. We'll go buy the second one without selling the first one. It created chaos. They weren't able to sell the first house for another five, six years. 
I've talked about my own situation that, that I lived in with my family. Those were very difficult years. And people I knew who were promising 20% returns for investing in their real estate operation just got clobbered by rising interest rates. So it turned the lives of many people I know upside down. So I think there are a lot of people who come to take low interest rates as the new normal, not so much. Okay, good question here from the chat. And of all these people, which ones do you see returning to Twitter? Donald Trump, yes, I see him returning. Nick Fuentes, yes. Andrew Tate, I'd give him 30% chance. Alex Jones, I'd give him 15% chance of returning to Twitter. David Duke, 15% chance of returning to Twitter. American Renaissance, Jared Taylor, 20% chance of returning to Twitter. Yeah, so the housing market is, is declining in, in America, in, in Australia. In Australia, they don't have fixed rate mortgages. The, the longest you can maintain a fixed rate is something like two years or five years. So in America, you can sign out for a 30-year fixed. There is no such option in Australia. Work anywhere else, which means the next time American demand falters, the next time the United States falls into recession, we better make sure we have as many monetary tools as possible. So they're not going to stop when rates get to 4%. They're probably not going to stop when rates get to 6%. 6% is kind of like their minimum for what they need in the midterm to deal with the next economic crisis. So you shouldn't expect the Fed to stop because there's a lot of whinging. Now, on the topic of whinging, there's going to be a great deal. I would say that it comes from two places. Number one are those industries... I don't hear Americans using the word whinging very much. Good on you, Peter that have boiled up over the last 15 years in an environment of basically having free capital. We had interest rates at zero for a decade. And in many cases, interest rates went negative either because of central banks doing it directly like they did in, say, Europe, or indirectly like the United States did with its quantitative easing programs. But regardless, when money is free, all kinds of weird shit happens. Past periods of low interest rates gave us the Chinese boom. Well, that's over. Past periods gave us the Japanese boom. That's over. Past gave us subprime. That's over. In the current boom, we're getting cryptocurrency. And this is no different from any other technological marvel that we've had in previous economic expansions. So you should be ex you should expect high credit costs to it just like everything else. The tech sector in Silicon Valley writ large is more aware of this. They've been a little bit around a little bit longer. Yeah, NASDAQ has just been cr crashing. I mean, the Dow has had a pretty good past uh, six weeks, but NASDAQ just absolutely getting, getting crushed. Colin Liddell, he's one of those rare intellectuals and pundits who I can't predict what they're going to say, which, which makes him continually interesting. I, I particularly like this, uh, this video. <laughs> Why are the Democrats using satanic imagery of Biden? By Daniel Barge. By now you've probably heard of the dark Brandon meme, and you may have even seen the image above, which comes from a big speech that Biden gave recently. To be honest, it seems like a still from one of the Omen movies, and there is definitely something of a creepy satanic vibe about it. This is certainly how it is being taken, by a lot of tweeters and commentators, who need something a little edgy to say every five minutes. But why would the Dems be doing this? Why not instead shoot Biden's speech against a wholesome backdrop of kids, puppies, and American flags? Why the satanic note? Those who hate Biden, that is, those in the Trump, MAGA, QAnon camps, will, in fact, 
see this as it is designed to be seen by them, namely, as quasi-satanic. These people already think Biden is, if not satanic himself, at least under the power and control of Satanists, or under the control of Satan himself. Let's be frank here, giving them imagery like this, is simply throwing them a little red meat, to feed their delusions. Normies, however, if they even see this, will see almost nothing. Some of them might think it looks a bit cool, or else wonder why the lighting guy fucked up. But, it'll just be, meh. The real point of this aesthetic is to reach the Biden haters, and get them frothing at the mouth, about Biden being the Antichrist or something equally Christomoronic like that. The Dems are clearly trying to push a few buttons to get their opponents to react in embarrassing ways, to say stupid, insane, over-the-top things, and generally act like idiots going into the midterms. This kind of image can only serve that function. But, if it succeeds, it will help push the normies and most unaffiliated voters away from a GOP that has been provoked into going into full Alex Jones mode. That's a, that's a great analysis, right? I, now, if you have traditional views, you're more likely to believe in the realm of the demonic, and therefore it only makes sense that Republicans are much more likely to use demonizing language that the Democrats, because Republicans are much more likely to believe in demons. But one of the secrets, deliberate secrets of, of Donald Trump's success is that he has knowingly tried to provoke his enemies into overreaction. And this has been a strategy that he feels has worked for him since he got to know Roy Cohn, I assume in around age 30. And he learned this strategy from Roy Cohn. And Maybe here with the Doc Brandon meme, the Democrats are trying something similar, trying to get uh, Republicans to overreact. All right, here is uh, Peter Zion on Donald Trump. Everyone, Peter Zion here, coming to you from DC once again with the next installment of our leadership series on world leaders of the present and recent past. Obviously, I have the capital here behind me, <coughs> which is, I've been coming in and out of DC for 25 years now. It's always under construction, which I think says something about the US government. And the food trucks in front of it are more reliable for food service than anything that's inside, which I think is equally um, good for a backdrop for the president we're going to talk about now, which is Donald Trump. I think the best way to understand Trump is to compare him to his immediate predecessor, who is by far the most similar American president to Trump. Uh, in all the ways that matter, they were identical, and in all the ways that matter, they were absolutely opposite, and that kind of shaped who he is. So, for example, uh, Barack Obama didn't run really as a Democrat. He was an outside candidate who came with his own political support and ran on charisma rather than policy. Sound familiar? But whereas Obama then shunned the party when he got into the president and wouldn't talk to anyone, Donald Trump embraced the party and took it over and systematically kicked out factions that he found problematic, like, say, national security, fiscal, and business conservatives. He remade the party in his own image. Uh, as to policy, Donald Trump um, was almost identical in many ways, but also the inverse. So Obama was super brainy, and he felt he needed to understand the ins and outs of everything that was happening in the world, and he really did understand. But since he didn't like meeting with people, policy never came out of it. We had basically eight years of nothing. Donald Trump was going to have a policy. And he loved the limelight. He loved being with people. But a little bit like Obama, he didn't really care what they had to say. So most meetings were about him talking about him. And policy would come out as a tweet. And he just assumed that the government would take it and run. And, you know, that's not how management works. So we had policies. They were loud. They were brash. They were bold. And they were never implemented because the president was moving on to the next thing. Uh, it didn't matter if this was domestic or foreign policy. So government by speech, government by tweet, again, inverse of Obama. There was no follow-up whatsoever, but it was loud and it was ever-present. Now, I attempt in my work to be apolitical because nobody hires me to find out what I think about domestic politics or where I think the world should go. They, they care about where it is going, regardless of whether I like it or not, whether, regardless of whether they like it or not. And so I tend to give politicians a lot of rope to hang themselves before I make a judgment. With 
W. Bush, I didn't really give up hope until year seven when the surge happened in Iraq. It became apparent that the national security community had been so locked into the war for so long uh, and the administration was so tired and just lost all creativity that it was apparent that nothing good was going to happen with the remainder of the term. With Barack Obama, I lost faith immediately after the re-election when it became apparent that this hands-off non-management style wasn't just until he was beyond the next election, that this really was the president and we were never going to get any policy ever. Uh, Donald Trump and I probably started to part ways a little earlier. In the second year, he started actively campaigning publicly against institutions in the U.S. government that were designed to do nothing but support the president. And treating uh, groups like the CIA as your enemy when all they're trying to do is inform you and help you get things done seemed a little self-destructive to me. And then, of course, about three and a half years in, he started actively agitating against his own government, against his own cabinet even. And then, of course, with the elections, his appointed election comptroller declared the elections the cleanest ones that have ever happened in the United States. But, of course, Donald Trump had already made another decision. So, in my opinion, that condemns Donald Trump to being right down there with Barack Obama as one of the bottom 10% of presidents in American history. Whew, yeah, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from that from everyone. All right, next up, the guy in charge right now, Joe Biden. Hey everyone, Peter Zine here coming to you from Chattanooga. Uh, today we of course have to talk about Brazil because we've had elections there over the weekend which resulted in a narrow win for Lula who is the center-left candidate who is a former president, now again the current president. He defeated uh, Bolsonaro who is the incumbent uh, of the right and uh, Bolsonaro is, um, well, it's a bit of a Trump-like figure, which I don't mean to have a connotation negative or positive, uh, but he was a leader who tried to make Brazil great again. Uh, he actually used the slogan from time to time. Uh, and like Trump, he has been agitating against his own government and his own election system. This is the person who is responsible for the integrity of American elections, who was appointed by Trump, said the election where Trump lost was clean. The same thing has happened in Brazil. Uh, the question, of course, is whether Bolsonaro is going to try to challenge the elections or not. Uh, the okay, so I've been listening to some terrific podcasts by Harvey A. from Sexaholics Anonymous. Let me see if I can figure out how to how to play this. Illness that you are allergic, and I won't say you that I am allergic to lust, and I will take it to my grave. What so what distinguishes Sexaholics Anonymous from other sex-related 12-step programs is that the bottom line in Sexaholics Anonymous is that uh, there's a commitment to stop lusting. So for other sex programs, the commitment may be to stop acting out. No more pornography, no more uh, prostitutes, no more strippers, no more <laughs> exposing yourself publicly. But Sexaholics Anonymous, they put the focus on lust. So one of the ways I've tried to stay emotionally sober during my turbulent life is that I've been listening to hours of Harvey Asher. And this guy is like about 83 years of age. He's, he lives in a retirement community. And he just brings it. He's, he's Jewish. And I just really dig it. Oh, come on. Um, that the definition is exactly this way and that, for instance... So the definition of sobriety in Sexaholics Anonymous is that you only have sex with your opposite-sex spouse. It, Sexaholics Anonymous does not believe in same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships, does not believe in sex outside of marriage. You go to a Sexaholics Anonymous meeting in New York or Los Angeles, it's overwhelmingly men with yarmulkes, like Hasidim, Orthodox Jews, and fervent Christians. same-sex cannot be sober in a same-sex marriage. I often wondered, and I never found any piece of literature in AS about the discussions that were 
that that went on before the the definition was uh, was decided and, and so they're they're having a discussion here about their definition of sobriety and nobody can nobody talks about it uh, to me I mean I I, I asked two or three old timers and they they were somehow reluctant to to answer. And I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to question it or discuss it. I just want to understand. This is why I ask. Thank you. Um, it's a very simple answer. This is a very homophobic fellowship. But it's the only fellowship that's worked for me. <laughs> I mean, it works for me. <laughs> We can pretty it up all we want. In my opinion, it's a homophobic fellowship. What can I tell you? But to answer your question, this was one of the most dangerous issues that had been used and used for decades, ever since I've been in, to distract us Okay, so I think this touches on a more important point than just uh, sex addiction or addiction in general. But there are a ton of things in life that work and don't fit into your worldview or your ideology or even a socially acceptable. So I went to yoga for years, uh, kundalini yoga, and much of the rhetoric and the teachings associated with it didn't make sense to me. But I had genuine transcendent experiences there. And I, I constantly find in life things that just work but don't make sense. And this is what Harvey Asher is talking about. What works, even if it doesn't make sense. The real problem that no one wants to define. They're so busy defining marriage, they don't want to define what is sex with self. So in Sexaholics Anonymous, you are not supposed to have sex with self. So you're obviously not allowed to masturbate, but you're not allowed to essentially, you know, masturbate inside of another human being. You're taking you know, on a commitment essentially to say no to lust, which is just unfathomable to me, particularly as I walk around the eastern suburbs of Sydney, a lot of, you know, fit Sheilas who are able to rip off a whole bunch of pull-ups and... I, I still I still have, have much more lust going on in my life than Sexaholics Anonymous would say is ideal. So instead of worrying about why we do this, why we don't. <laughs> How much sex or masturbation is considered an addiction once a week? It's not the amount, it is the effect on your life. So whether it's live streaming, drinking water, exercising, working, working out, alcohol, drugs, debting, spending. If you're doing something where you feel compelled to participate in your own destruction, then addiction may be a useful term, right? You feel compelled to participate in your own destruction when it comes to spending money, when it comes to the use of credit cards, when it comes to how you conduct yourself at work when it comes to your use of pornography, masturbation, fantasy, 
your sex and love life. If you feel compelled to participate in your own destruction, then I think addiction is a useful term. Compelled to participate in your own destruction. Be concerned about how you define sex with self. Glib Medley says, Sex Sexaholics Anonymous is the NBA of addictions. Lots of arbitrary foul calls. So Sexaholics Anonymous is the most religious of the 12-step sex programs. Uh, I think Sex Addicts Anonymous is overwhelmingly gay men who are trying to stop, you know, compulsively acting out, exposing themselves, raping, molesting kids. Then Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous looks at issues with regard to sex primarily in the context of relationships. So some of the S programs are just primarily homosexuals. Uh, the sexaholics primarily Orthodox Jews and fervent Christians. When it comes to what did the fellowship do, we had all kinds of things. We even had lawyers about this. And ultimately... Yeah, they had to run their their definitions and their program by lawyers. This is America. Roy owned the book, and now his family owns the book. The SA does not own the SA book. So we have no control over what it says. I have made a surrender. I love SA. This is a program that has kept me sober. And so when a gay people come in to meetings, I will say you are always welcomed, but if you're having sex with a partner, you will not be called sober, but you can gain a lot from our fellowship. Right, you can gain a lot from communities, fellowships, groups where you are not living up to their ideals, right? A lot of people go to church or synagogue and don't live up to the ideals of their church or synagogue, right? So one does not have to live up to certain standards necessarily to be part of a group and to benefit from being in that group. And this has nothing to do necessarily with 12 staff. But I think it illustrates this. But I suggest you also go to some of the other fellowships where you can't say you're sober. Because if you think this is only about the gay issue, you're missing it. (laughs) Because there are people who live heterosexually have never got married in this program. We tend not to talk about it. They say, oh, my partner, my spouse. What is the program about? Me staying sober. And if you notice, my last talk was on tradition too, and it's about unity. And I would like this fellowship to continue. Right, so you may not agree with a whole bunch of things in your church, your synagogue, your group, but if you think overall the the group is doing something good, then you can sign on and support it, even if you don't agree. 
earlier on in this talk, Harvey talks about hiding the number of viewers that he has for this live presentation because he feels his ego getting involved. He would he would find it a setback if he had fewer viewers and listeners that he had the last time. So to try to keep his ego in check, there's a 12-step acronym about ego stands for edging God out. He puts up some tape over his screen so he can't see how many people are listening to him live. Harvey Asher. This Thank is, uh, God there are three. other fellowships that people could attend. And I need SA. And the worst thing I could do is disrupt what is the unity. And if people don't like it, they could go to the fellowships. What can I say? This guy has a lot of common and, sense. And that's oh, coming dude. from a guy who <laughs> have had sex everywhere. <laughs> like this guy didn't start out attracted to men, but he was attracted to sex. So he ended up having sex with hundreds of men, many different women. Luckily, he was able to find sobriety before AIDS really took over. And so he attributes his ability to stay alive to his experience with Sexaholics Anonymous. <laughs> if we're not careful, it becomes an outside issue. Why would I say that? And by the way, this is one of the first times I'm ever talking about this in public. Why would I say it's an outside issue? Because it's not only SA that has this problem. <laughs> Countries have it. Religions have it. Religions have split over this issue. It's an outside issue. And be careful of outside issues. It will destroy our fellowship. And we will get to that tradition eventually. That's that's another good thing in 12-step programs, the idea that outside issues are outside issues that don't let outside issues destroy the good things you've got going on in your in-group, right? There's a lot of stuff out there that's irrelevant to your group. Wisdom from Harvey Asher. Now, I want guy. to say one other thing that has nothing to do with gayness. It has to do with our sobriety. It's all relative. In other fellowships, you could masturbate and say you're sober. Everything is made up. If you're looking for truth. Glenn Metley says it reminds me of Al Goldstein, this guy. Yeah, he's Jewish, and he's got that, that Jewish intensity, and he makes a great point that when he was younger, he dreamed of becoming successful so that he could talk to wide groups of people about success and convince them about sex and convince them to follow him. And so what is he doing here at age 84? He's talking to large groups of people about success and trying to influence them. So he ended up doing you know, the sort of thing that he fantasized about doing when he was younger. So he is, he is a very similar personality to an Al Goldstein. Man, I wish you luck. What are you going to... 
believe newspapers or TV shows or your parents. <laughs> Truth is a perception. And Gary says, I'm sitting here drinking whiskey straight. I'm thinking about paths to a different, more holistic form of sobriety. I want to stay emotionally sober. But I have accepted this definition. I made a decision to turn my life over to this definition, which is not strong enough for me. So I have upgraded my definition since I would have sex too often with my wife. Part of my sobriety includes how often I can have sex with my wife. So press one in the chat if you're having sex too often with your wife. Press two if you're having sex too often, period. It includes not going to intentionally into a shower room where there are other men who won't be dressed. That is a loss of my bottom line sobriety. And if I walk into a pornography store, other than to pull someone out, that's a, and I never even see something or do something, that's a loss of my sobriety. I don't know anyone else who adds that to theirs. But I've had to come to terms with progressive victory over lust, and what is my sobriety definition? And, and that you, apparently works for him, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily work for everyone. So let's switch a bit to step to the step four. Why did I call this an impossible quest? An impossible dream. And yet we get courage to pursue it. Because without our natural instincts that step four talks about over and over again in the 12 and 12. So step four, how I did step four is I listed all the people and institutions that I resented. Then I listed, and you do it, you do it uh, vertically, right? You list everyone you resent. That's one column. Then you list why you resent them. And so I did that vertically. And then I listed which parts of myself were most affected. And I found out it was those parts of myself, uh, my social standing, right? That was the most likely to provoke resentment. People who damaged my social standing, but there are also people who damaged my sex and love life and my material security or emotional security. So those are the basics, your, your, your prestige, your social standing, your security, physical, monetary, and, and uh, emotional security, uh, your sex, sex and love life, right? You know, which parts of yourself did, uh, did they damage? And then I did a column on where was I responsible? And then I did a column on how I would act differently in similar situations going forward. So that helped me get a little more even keeled Without natural instincts that happen to live in the ego, in the self-consciousness, not our real self, perhaps, not perhaps, not our only self, what happens 
the natural instincts, right? Having desire for prestige, having desire for attention, having desire for sex, having desire for money, power, security, emotional and physical. None of these are bad things. It's just that when these natural instincts start getting out of proportion, out of place, so that they then damage you and you feel compelled to participate in your own destruction, then obviously you have a problem. But first you have to get clear about which natural instincts Well, what happens is without ego, meaning without instincts, the world would collapse. Can you imagine in caveman times if some caveman looked out and saw a cave down the road that had fire in it, if he didn't get jealous and say, I want that fire for my house, nothing would progress. What if we didn't have sexual desire? You and I wouldn't be here. I I get so embarrassed, ashamed by the gross ways that I've hit on women, the aggressive ways that I've hit on women, how quickly I've tried to transition women I've met into the bedroom, how I have begged, pleaded for sex, lost all dignity in in my pursuit of uh, sex and love. I have been quite the creep at times. But you know, I have to come back to, number one, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had at that time to meet my needs. And two, these are basic instincts. If men, generally speaking, don't ask women out, don't make the moves on women, we're not going to reproduce as a species. So this is good, basic, common sense sanity here from Harvey Asher in the Sexaholics talk at thedailyreprieve.com. My wife was always convinced she came from, who knows, (laughs) but not from what people do. (laughs) And one day we had a rude awakening. I won't go into it all, but it's a cute story. And we live in this distortion that the world isn't surviving because of sex. Yes, that's the survival basis. Now, let's use me as an example. I'm a, um, an aggressive, assertive guy. If I weren't aggressive and assertive, Do you think I'd be giving these Zoom talks? (laughs) See, that's never changed in me. What changed was the direction. In other words, many of you have heard me say this. Before I came into the program, all I wanted to do was seduce men and women for sex. Before I came into the program, all I wanted to do was talk about sex. Before I came into the program, 
I just wanted to hang around the, the people who were wild about sex. Look at me 37 years later. I'm still seducing you, but for recovery. Same exact natural instinct, but in a different direction. And look at me. What am I doing? I'm talking to people who only like to talk about sex. (laughs) Come on, loosen up, group. We're not in a cemetery. Come on. (laughs) Face it. We feel comfortable in SA because we're among people who understand us. So I haven't changed me. The program has changed my direction. Right, a good way to channel your instincts. No, this guy's not drunk. He's been sober in AA for 40 years. He's been largely sober in SA for 30 plus years. This guy's fair dinkum. He's got a lot of life wisdom. We call it self-will run riot. Natural instincts that have gone wild. Can you imagine if people did not want a bigger television, let's say, or a nicer prayer book or something? They never have to go to work. Without jealousy and envy, we'd never get out of our houses. Or our kids would be starving. So this concept that so many people have in recovery is when a character defect shows up, oh my God, and they go into shame and how awful and Look, I got to get rid of it. It's terrible. It's not shame when you discover a character defect. It's called an awakening. A spiritual awakening. People are so afraid of the fourth step. Anything they discover, they start shaming themselves about. Instead of saying, thank God I see a new aspect of me. Now, once I see it, I can't change it. So shaming yourself over it doesn't work. That's why we have the sixth and seventh step. I used to try shame. I used to just beat myself down. You worthless piece of, you stupid mother effer. I mean, that's how I used to deal with my unsightly character defects by my my compulsive behavior that was incredibly destructive. When I, over and over again, I'd feel compelled to participate in my own destruction with 
my behavior at work with the things I'd say and do socially, overconsumption of uh, pornography, uh, antisocial things that I'd say and do online. I'd, I'd just feel compelled to participate in my own destruction and that I'd shame myself and beat myself down, and it did absolutely no good. Uh, I discovered that uh, shaming myself is not a good path forward. All right, what's going on with Britain's middle management? Hello, this is Colin Liddell, and this is The Short Pod, a brief and succinct podcast commenting on the events and issues of the day, and today it is the 30th of October, 2022. My topic today will be the appointment of Britain's first non-white Prime Minister, a truly remarkable event that has astounded the world. Now, it's very natural for many people to see this through a racial lens. And uh, this is, in fact, how the members of the Conservative Party uh, saw this issue, which is why they were not allowed to have a say by the party leadership. But for the party leadership and the elites to which they are connected, this is much more a question of um, having the, the right man for the job, white or not white. In fact, they'd be quite happy to have the right woman for the job. But as we saw, they didn't really think there was anybody suitable among the leading contenders. Now, this all um, springs from the Boris problem. Now, Boris was uh, immensely popular. Uh, he was um, very popular with the members of the Conservative Party. He was the guy who had actually got Brexit done. And also, he seemed to be very, very popular with the voters. Certainly, he was in 2019. But uh, I think the leaders of the Conservative Party, they realised that um, Boris was a spent force. He was increasingly becoming a liability. And the reason for that was because in 2019, uh, Boris achieved a sound in popularity, not based so much on his personal qualities which are considerable but limited, but much more on the fact that um, he was able to attract Brexit support in Labour voters. Now, this is a very, very temporary effect because now that Brexit has been done and, so to speak, is out of the way, those Red Wall voters no longer have an incentive to uh, vote Conservative like they once did. Also, Boris was becoming much more of a kind of Trump-like target, somebody who would polarise the electorate rather than some, someone who could uh, reach across the aisle to the floating voters. And uh, before they got rid of Boris, they noticed that um, there had been several by-elections in which uh, Labour and Lib Dem voters had uh, been voting in an extremely tactical way. So this was this was making things look quite dark for the Conservative Party. So the, uh, there was definitely a need to freshen up the Conservative brand. They tried to replace Boris. They got rid of him. Uh, there was a constant media barrage uh, attacking him for a relatively minor infringement of the COVID lockdown rules. They hounded him out of uh, office rather in the same way that they hounded Jeremy Corbyn out of uh, the leadership of the Labour Party with fake anti-Semitism charges. And so then the stage was set for a replacement. Um, unfortunately for the elites and the Conservative Party MPs, the membership of the Conservative Party, about 160,000 people, were persuaded to vote for Liz Truss, someone that the elites didn't think was um, quite good enough. The other candidates that uh, came up in the leadership contest, uh, people like Kemi Badenoch, Penny Mordaunt. And a uh, great comment in the chat from Falcon. Not sure of this channel's direction. Everything in the USA is going to hell. So I summarize my understanding of this channel is that we discuss distant ideas without automatically deciding that they're wrong or bad or automatically deciding that they're right and good. So we entertain out of the mainstream perspectives on the news and discuss them in combination with the mainstream perspectives. So I read distant material. I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. And I read people on the, the far right, right? So generally speaking, most people here are on the right. But there, there are leftists who come here too because they, I guess they enjoy the discussion of, of distant ideas. So that's the perspective. That's what we're doing here. Et cetera. 
none of these people were considered quite good enough. But uh, they thought that uh, Rishi had the right uh, set of skills, the right competency, and he also had the added bonus of um, being non-white. Now, some people might think that's a drawback, and it might well be a drawback with the British voters. We're yet to see how that plays out. But there's no denying that race aside, Rishi is probably the uh, most presentable and uh, the most economically savvy of the uh, top Tory candidates. And so they thought that um, putting him in charge would uh, give them the best shot at uh, staying in power. This is definitely what the markets thought. Uh, as soon as Rishi was installed by a coup d'etat of the Conservative Party MPs. and Bar- Right. You can be as racist as you like, but if, if Rishi Sunak is the best man for the job, you can still admit that. Right. You can have your racial preferences and recognize that someone outside of your race may still be the best person for the job. Financial markets certainly reacted positively to Rishi Sunak becoming Britain's prime Boris minister. Boris was forced to back off. The interest rate on government gilts immediately dropped, and this made British government debt a lot cheaper than it otherwise would be under um, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. So there we're seeing the effectiveness of uh, Rishi Sunak immediately demonstrated in the, uh, the fall of uh, the price of debt. There's also a sense that uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party at the moment is very much a poisoned chalice. The smart money is definitely on the Labour Party winning the next election. Uh, Rishi's got a very major uphill struggle to um, pull the Tories back from their extremely low position in the latest opinion polls, especially has... Hey, it's my old friend Ricardo. I haven't talked to you for a while, mate. So Ricardo says, Kylie and Kanye are leading blacks off the plantation. Do you really think they're showing an effective path forward? Right? seems to me that Kanye and Kyrie are showing a self-destructive path forward. Surely there are better models. When, when I try to understand what Kyrie and, and Kanye are on about, usually I just feel my, my brain slowing down. Surely there are more effective ways to uh, go forward for their people. The, um, the government will be forced to make a rather massive uh, budget cuts. Those are going to prove very, very unpopular. And Ricardo says, I'm not surprised that the Anti-Defamation League and friends are going... Before Kyle, Roland, or Kanye, and Kyrie, I foresee dark times for the ADL. Well, so far, it's Kyrie and Kanye who are suffering the dark times. And I don't think in America today you can be publicly anti-Jewish and continue to hoard a prestigious position in society. We're also kind of moving into a more inflationary economy for the last, um, I think, roughly the last 40 years. Uh, credit has been quite cheap, and that's because for the preceding 40 years, inflation had been high enough to gradually... So if you pushed Ricardo to the wall and you said, you must tell me the name of your favourite pundit, Ricardo would tell you Colin Liddell. Colin Liddell is my favourite pundit. It's for perspectives like these on Britain's middle management manage democracy. Evaporate government debt. And so that set the stage for the neoliberal low interest rate economy that we've uh, enjoyed over recent decades. Now we're moving back into a kind of uh, 1940 to 1980 high inflation or higher inflation economy. And that's almost inevitable because governments are unable to cut spending. And so they're forced to rely upon um, higher inflation to deplete and diminish uh, government debt. And the elites and the leading members of the Conservative Party, they obviously think that Rishi is... uh... And Ricardo says, my favourite pundit right now is Kanye. Kanye West gets it. Blacks are not the same as white. They don't feel the same. White guilt, obviously... Of their own victim identity. So if you have any kind of group identity, part of that group identity will be a victim identity. Like strongly identifying Jews frequently have an element of victim identity. You know, think about all the awful things that non-Jews have done to us. Strongly identifying blacks have 
the victim identity, think about all the awful things that non-blacks have done to us, strongly identifying Muslims, uh, Christians, you know, the world's conspiring against Christians. Like, to have a strong identity, any in-group identity will always have a victim identity part and parcel of it. Every group feels victimized. Feeling victimized is essential to in-group identity. I, I don't know how you'd have an in-group identity without it. A better person to manage that, probably the Labour Party's Keir Starmer, more or less represents the same kind of um, outlook. And so, you know, Rishi and Keir Starmer, basically you can see them as two sides of the same coin. So it's not really that important what happens at the next election. What you'll get is a technocratic leader, somebody who recognises the new economic paradigm. So that, that's an interesting perspective. So both Rishi Sunak, the Conservative Prime Minister of Britain, and the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, essentially both technocrats, there won't be major changes in public policy, depending on who's in office. Dime, and, uh, you know, somebody who will then, you know, uh, suit the interests and the needs of uh, the uh, trans-political elite. In the case of Rishi, the added bonus, like I said earlier, is that he's non-white. This helps to bolster Britain's position. Bit Medley says, too late for Anglo-Saxons to have a victim identity. To the extent that Anglo-Saxons have an Anglo-Saxon identity, I'm sure there's a victimhood component to it. I think the major issue is that Anglo-Saxons today don't have an in-group Anglo-Saxon identity. If they ever develop one, a feeling of victimhood will be essential, right? You're not going to grow a strong Anglo-Saxon identity without thinking about how you've been victimized by outsiders. Ricardo says the ADL is going to find out that everyone knows what's going on. I was at the gym a couple of days ago. These two 25-year-old meatheads were discussing Kanye. They know Kanye is not lying. Maybe, maybe things are changing. I suspect that in a battle between Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, and the Anti-Defamation League, I would put my, my shekels on the ADL. ...in the global economy. In particular, it plays very, very... Not in the sense that I agree with the ADL's policies and rhetoric and procedures. I just think they're more effective. I'm just talking strictly in morally free winning and losing terms. Who's going to win this dispute and who's going to lose. I expect that Kanye and Kyrie are going to keep losing as long as they continue this fight. Very well to India and the Indian population. The Indians have been kind of cock a hoop that one of theirs is now in charge of the, the remnants of the British Empire. And this makes Britain seem very, very sympathetic to India. And it might even help um, India to uh, align itself with the West. And uh, that could be a little bit of an additional challenge to Putin. And uh, now with Keir Starmer, there's also some benefits to the transpolitical elite. If a Labour government is elected at the next general election, that will help to depress nationalist sentiment in the uh, Celtic fringes. Regions or countries like Scotland and Wales, where secessionist or independence sentiment has been growing in recent years, they will feel better represented if the national government is a Labour government. One of the main reasons why Scottish independence flared up so strongly in the 2010s was uh, because the Conservatives seemed to be increasing their hold on power at Westminster. And so a brief holiday for the Conservative Party a short period of Labour power in the safe hands of Keir Starmer, not Jeremy Corbyn, has certain advantages to the British establishment. So I think what we're seeing here is that um, Britain is very much a manipulated democracy. Uh, when people vote the wrong way, the elites kind of tap them on the shoulder and rearrange things in a way that suits the elites. And one of the, the most powerful tools that they have to do this are the, the guilt markets, the debt markets for UK government debt. If a British, if a popularly elected leader, Boris Johnson or Elizabeth Truss, do something that they're not quite happy with, they simply have to uh, hit that particular button and uh, a government can be brought to its knees. And now, Keir Starmer. Right, we all have to operate within a situation. 
instead of the financial markets don't approve of your public policies and the price of debt goes way up and the government gets deposed. He's, he's going to be probably our next prime minister in a couple of years. Uh, but he has to more or less behave like Rishi Sunak because if he does anything differently from Rishi Sunak, if he makes any kind of spending commitments that, uh, don't, um, that don't add up, the markets can really push up the interest rates on government debt and force a Labour government to back down. So, so I, I know Ricardo is getting annoyed. He wants to know, what is Colin Liddell's perspective on Kanye West? So let's... Kanye West in fear of an anti-Semitic planet by Colin Liddell. Kanye West wasn't kidding when he said he was going to go DEFCON free on the Jews. This has now become a massive story, especially in the underbelly of the hard-to-control sub-media, where Kanye's claims that the Jews run the financial system and the media, and have him in their sights because he's the true Jew, are spreading like wildfire. Now, CNN is reporting that Kanye is even something of a Hitler fan. Quote, Several people who were once close to the artist formerly known as Kanye West, told CNN that he has long been fascinated by Adolf Hitler and once wanted to name an album after the Nazi leader. A business executive who worked for West, who now goes by E, told CNN that the artist created a hostile work environment, in part through his obsession with Hitler. He would praise Hitler by saying how incredible it was that he was able to accumulate so much power and would talk about all the great things he and the Nazi party achieved for the German people, the individual told CNN. End quote. This is a dangerous game to play, as tying Kanye to Hitler may pull Hitler up more than it pulls Kanye down. Also, Kanye is not exactly wrong. It's not difficult to make the case that Jews have a presence in media and financial circles extremely disproportionate to their small numbers, and that this, in turn, gives them massive potential influence. Also, having such influence, why wouldn't they use it in a way that favored their own ethnic interests even if that involved screwing over the real Jews like Kanye? The answer, of course, is that there is no reason at all, and that, using that influence for Jewish interests is only to be expected. The problem of Jewish influence, however, is that it is always influence, and never, or seldom, direct power. As soon as it becomes direct power, it provokes a reaction that kills it. This is what happened to Rosa Luxemburg, Bela Kuhn, and the short-lived Bavarian Soviet Republic. In my view, Jews tend to be compliant influencers, basically giving people what they want and then attempting to mollify the inevitable contradictions that arise. This would even explain why they are pretty good at stand-up. Even in the Soviet Union, the one case where Jewish power appeared to be most powerfully in the ascendant, it had to deny its Jewishness to such an extent that almost all of the prominent Jews ended up turning against each other and being removed from positions of power by someone less ethnically conflicted. The greatest Jew, as well as the most vociferously self-denying one, Leon Trotsky, ended up with his skull wrapped around a Mexican ice pick. Jewish power, if we must call it that, is always soft power, and soft power usually relies on deception, namely tricking people into believing things that serve the agenda of the group exerting the power. Key to this trick... Well, Israel has the largest, most effective, well, the most effective military in the Middle East. That's not uh, soft power, so... Jews are capable of hard power as well. Curry is hiding the identity and interests of the group exerting the power. However, thanks to the internet and the death of the gatekeeper cult... And this idea that the, the Trotsky was the greatest Jew, I, I don't know where Colin comes up with that. I mean, he had nothing to do with Judaism. He had no sympathy for the Jewish people. He was overwhelmingly a communist. Jewish identity did not play a large role in its life. Culture, as well as growing cynicism at the way the world works, it is becoming harder to pull this off. It is especially difficult for a group, like the Jews, who have been mean to death as hidden hands for centuries. The suppression of the alt-right also didn't work out very well, as it kind of sort of played into their narratives of the Jews having too much power. Yes, well-intentioned, but heavy-handed attempts to stamp out anti-Semitism itself becomes the story and adds to the pool of cynicism and suspicion about the exercise of soft power and the agendas of the various groups operating in the shadows. Now, and this is the interesting... Right, the Barbara Streisand effect. So Barbara Streisand complained when Google 
publish a photo of our home and by complaining and drawing attention to the issue, then all sorts of people piled on and made a problem even worse. So when Jewish organizations jump on everyone who says anything anti-Jewish, sometimes you can overplay your hand and people will start to sympathize with, with those who are getting bullied. Point. The Jews are not the only group operating in the shadows, pouring soft power into the bloodstream of the world like a corrosive poison. There are other groups, non-Jewish business elites, faceless and raceless bureaucrats, the U.S. military-industrial complex, Putin's gang, the Chinese, those in the pay of the Saudis, the deep states of almost every major country, etc., etc. But in a world that has so many unseen levels and levers of power, it is the Jew, with his iconic image and viral possibilities, modeled on the medieval meme magic of the Catholic Church and revived by the memes of the modern anti-Semite, that comes to serve as a convenient hate figure for the unfocused fears that the increasing manipulation of our complex world is producing. Over in Britain, the system has just been rigged, with an Indian... Yeah, that was a good, good phrase, the hidden manipulation of our complex world. The world is so much more complex than we can possibly comprehend. We start to think we dimly or explicitly discern patterns in the world around us. And so we start to get more and more clarity about you know, who are these forces that are shaping the, the world around us in ways that are denied, say, publicly by academia and, and the media and not allowed to say things out loud. Coming in as prime minister. But guess what? Don't expect the conspiracy minded to blame the eternal Hindus for this piece of apparent skullduggery. They have a much better fit for their paranoid whodunit. While many groups are guilty of pulling the strings of soft power and hard power or distorting things to serve their nefarious agendas, the bad karma from this collective abuse or lack of transparency of the system flows overwhelmingly and unfairly back towards the ever iconic figure of the Jew. Kanye, with the rapper's truth to power culture. Well, it makes sense that a disproportionately influential group is going to be disproportionately blamed and praised for what's going on in the world. So it makes sense a disproportionately influential group will gain disproportional emotional intense reactions, either positive or negative. ...of the oppressed finally rising up and, in this case, even trashing the Democrat plantation is a perfect vessel to give voice to these gathering sentiments, which are much more widespread than most care to admit. What can the Jews do about the viral possibilities that Kanye has unleashed? Even if all Jews acted with moral rectitude, complete transparency, and total integrity, and stopped leveraging the political process or dialed back their occasionally exploitative pull on the culture, even then, it would perhaps be too late. We now live in a world that, through its complexity, lack of ethnic unity, and multifarious levels of manipulation, is breeding mistrust, paranoia, and, yes, hatred, on an industrial scale. But, this same world also has removed the barriers for that paranoia and hatred to flow, and coagulate where it will, and where will it flow to? Why? To the eternal scapegoat, of course. Okay, here's uh, British Talk Radio. Hi, a great show, by the way. Um, hi, uh, let me just say first, I am uh, a Tory party member, and my dad was a constituency chairman. And um, we support Boris, and I'd say, in my estimate, 80% of the members support Boris. So that's where we're at. And our perspective is different to, you know, the media perspective, the markets. Both my daughters work in the city. There's a lot of AI algorithms coming from abroad, tampering with the markets. Now, we can't let the markets and the media run our country. It's a democracy. We are the voters, and we support Boris. So we want Boris back, and Boris has the best chance of winning the general election next time. So Rishi's not going to win it. Rishi's not even British, in most people's opinion. He's, not, he's, he's got American allegiance. His family's American. They're, they're Indian business people. He'll go and live in America, no doubt. He doesn't love England like Boris does. Okay, um, Jerry. To my knowledge, um, Rishi Sunak was born in the UK. He uh, went to Winchester School, which, as you know, is a long-established public school in this country. Um, 
as I understand it, he was, yeah, in fact, he was born at Southampton General Hospital. Um, well, can I just say, my, one of my mates, I was in the military, one of my mates was born in Uganda. He's white as a driven snow and he's English as English can be. He's not African, is he? Because he's born in Uganda. That no, doesn't mean anything. No, sorry, I'm, I'm, just picking up the, I'm just picking up on the fact that you, that you suggested that uh, Rishi Sunak isn't, isn't British or English and doesn't love the... This is just a classic conversation between someone with some traditional leanings, the caller, and a, a good liberal the host. country as much as um, Boris Johnson as a result. So I just want to clarify that with you, that he was born in this country, that he went to... Right, so if he's born here, therefore he's English. Right? If, if, if you're born in a country, therefore that's who you are. Right? There's a lot more to individuals than where they're born. In fact, where someone's born is often the, the least important thing about them. To one of the country's most prestigious, um, prestigious uh, public schools. But, but this woman thinks it's just such a, a killer... Come back, she's me. That he has um, worked, of course, in the city and then took up politics. That he is the man that many people credit through the furlough scheme um, saved the economy. Um, and you don't think that that proves that he's he's British? Was a green card. His wife and the family business, their fortune. His wife. Hang on, hang on, hang on. He's, relinquished, British... he's relinquished the green card, first of all. True. And, and quite rightly, he, and he quite... had to relinquish it. His wife is not British. She holds Amer- American okay, uh, citizenship. He himself, he himself citizenship. is a British citizen, isn't he? Okay, lots of people are. Half of Al Qaeda are British citizens. You don't understand. Right. Just because you sign up on, on a piece of papers, just because you're legally right, de facto, right, de jure, if you're de jure a citizen, that doesn't mean that it has any particular meaning or importance to you, right? Some people take an oath seriously, right? When some people pledge allegiance, when some people take an oath, they take it seriously. Most people don't take it seriously. It's just ticking a bureaucratic box to get things that they want. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Can I just be very clear here? Because I just, I don't want to, I just want to be clear that I've actually heard you correctly. Have you just likened Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, and possibly the next prime minister? She's so dishonest. Right. She, she thinks she's, you know, wielding this rhetorical sword to great effect. To, to a member of Al-Qaeda. I'm just saying, having a British passport doesn't mean you're a true English patriot who loves England. Boris loves England, and, and Richie Sunak will be decimated. If he leads a Tories into the election, I'm just, I'm just telling you what Tory voters believe. He will be decimated. He didn't even get barely 40% of Tory members, let alone the electorate. He'll get about 20% of the electorate. You are aware that Boris DeFeffel Johnson was born in New York, aren't you? That's what I'm saying. You can be born anywhere. You know that. It's, where, it's how your allegiance lies to the country. I said one of my best mates was born what, in what, Uganda. What do you I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated here. What do you expect, Rishi Sunak, former chancellor, a British citizen, someone educated in this country, someone credited with saving thousands of businesses through furlough, someone who has dedicated his life, according to many of his backers, 100 of them, uh, 100 MPs now. Uh, what more do you, would you like to see him do to prove his Britishness to you, Jerry? What, what would it take? Well, what is the final thing that you think? So this presenter, her name is Sangeeta Miska, right? She is from Tanzania. She has Indian and African heritage. So do you think she has any dog in this race? In September 2009, it was revealed she was mugged the previous year by Daniel Miko and his brother, Matthew, dubbed the London Strangler Robbers. So who were these people? Daniel Miko, the London Strangler Robbers. Who are these guys? What do they look like? Ah, okay. That's what they look like. So she is of Indian and African heritage, the BBC presenter. She was the presenter and co-creator of the journalism series Positive Thinking. She 
produced a series, Lives in a Landscape. He wrote this series as an exploration of the pride and prejudice associated with having an ethnic name in Britain. And she's been named one of Europe's most 50 influential people. She was long listed for the 2007 Amnesty International Journalism Awards for her TV investigation into child trafficking. She won in 2012 the International Asian Woman of Achievement in the Media Award. So that's who the call is going up against. We'll make him British. And British enough well, the- precisely for Tory members like you to vote for him. Well... His family are still, their money and their taxes are still in India and America for a start. So you can, you can ignore that if you want. Actually, point. since the scandal, his wife, as I understand it, has given up her non-dom status and will be paying. Actually, I mean, she is so superior, so smug. She's the typical liberal who kind of lives to bully and to educate the, the traditionalists who still stick to their guns and their religion, to their traditional folk ways tax uh, tax affairs have been regularized so we've just removed two of your main concerns which is okay, where was push, he born the push. fact he's got a british passport we've also now dealt with the issue that he's relinquished his green green card and he his wife has now regularized her tax affairs do you think she has any agenda here what else does he need to know we've dealt with all of those things jerry what i'd like to know is because you say that you represent the average tory member what i'd like to know is what do you think rishi sunak needs to do to prove his britishness to the point where you believe tory members would vote for him I, I don't doubt he's British, don't get me wrong. What you said he doesn't, hang on, hang on, you said he doesn't England. love he doesn't his country. Love England. He doesn't I don't love think England. His, fa- his family, his business, they seem to be globalists. They don't seem to love England. And You can be a citizen of Great Britain, right? You can be a legal resident of England and not love the country. You point out the furlough. Well, we actually see it differently. He gave away four hundred billion pounds and practically bankrupted our economy over the idiotic furlough payment. He did not bankrupt uh, uh, the economy. That's just that's factually the, incorrect. The, the, he did not so bankrupt the economy. Also, may really, I ask you, really, Jerry? Really, Jerry, really, as we carry on, this is very important, Jerry. As we carry on this conversation, please don't use the phrase globalist again, because many of my Jewish listeners will find that incredibly offensive. Um, because if- oh, so if one uh, percent of your viewership finds a word offensive, then you must shut down all conversation using that word. It has also been used at times as uh, a racist put down to the Jewish community. So, so carry on, Jerry. Uh, on, my, if you wouldn't mind, that's answering. not true. That's not true. Yeah, carry on, Jerry, but just don't use unapproved language, Jerry. I, I don't mean Jewish. If I meant Jewish, I'd say Jewish. I, I did not. Somebody Jerry, international... Jerry, once more, I'm going to give you one more chance. I have explained to you that many members of the Jewish community are offended by that phrase. Please do not use it. Please answer my question. You say that you represent the average Tory party member. You say they did not vote for Rishi Sunak because he does not love England in the way that Boris Johnson loves England. Please answer my question. Do What do you think Rishi Sunak could do to prove his love of the country, Jerry? Nothing, because he will lose 80% to 20% if he stands in any vote against... So, Rishi Sunak seems to be more strongly against immigration, in particular illegal immigration, than than Boris Johnson. So, to me, if if Rishi Sunak is able to accomplish some of his uh, proposed immigration restriction, that would prove to me that uh, he really does love England. Real, uh, the electorate. Is the real problem here, Jerry, that Rishi Sunak is a brown man and you don't trust him at the top of this country? And, and she thinks this is the killer analysis, that, that if, if you prefer to be governed by people who look like you, that that makes you just irredeemably evil? 
Well, could you imagine him going to the Scottish Nationalists and being the Prime Minister of the Scottish Nationalists? Could you imagine me becoming the Prime Minister of Pakistan or, or Saudi Arabia? No, these things matter. I'm sorry you don't like it, but this is predominantly, we're talking about England. He's right. R race matters. Doesn't have to be determinative. Doesn't have to be the number one factor in how you view the world. But reality matters. Race is an integral part of reality. Sometimes it's more important than other times. A lot of it just comes down to emotion. But nationalism is an emotional state, right? Nationalism is not rational. That love of your country is not necessarily rational. England, right? 85% of English people, yes, are white English people. And they want to see a prime minister that reflects them. It's like, it's like I, can't, I can't just go to India and be the prime president there, can I? So just to be really clear here, Jerry, you... And as a self-appointed representative of Tory party members, because you say that your, your father was one, you are one, I, I don't know if your daughters are, you are suggesting a couple of things here. One, that you can only be English if you're white. And the thing that stopped you voting for Rishi Sunak, should the decision go out to the membership, the thing that will stop you and other Tory party members voting for Rishi Sunak is the colour of his skin. Have I understood that correctly? No, you completely twisted it. What I said is... I don't English think I have twisted it. You have twisted it. Oh, let me tell you what I think. I my reason for not backing Richie is that he destroyed our economy in the COVID crisis. I right? think you're losing this argument, Jerry. I think you are fundamentally a racist. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me to hear that uh, you and other Tory party members think like this. And do you know what? I think we're going to turn this into a phone-in tomorrow. Why don't we do that? Why don't we open the phone lines? Because I'd be very interested, Jerry, to hear from more people like you. Joey in Lewis. Okay, so press one if you think Jerry won that conversation. Jerry didn't. Okay. Press two if you think the presenter won. Uh, Jerry didn't get to win because the presenter was obviously controlling him, turning him on and off, telling him what language he could use. But I thought uh, Jerry acquitted himself pretty well. So good job, Jerry. Let's, uh, let's wind things down. Let's get a little bit more from Harvey Asher, thedailyreprieve.com. Avi Asher speaking to a bunch of members of Sexaholics Anonymous. This is how I'm staying emotionally sober these days, yeah. listening to a lot of podcasts. I say this over and over because people, it says this, these are the steps that divide the men to the boys. Or I paraphrase it. What does that ultimately mean? It's when you finally say, I see all this. I see it, but I can't change it. God, you take it. It's yours, whatever that means. So does God come and pluck it out of us? Depends how you want to think about God. But I know one thing that works. I have surrendered and said, no, I can't make it happen. Once that surrender comes in, lo and behold, we begin to change if we stay sober. It's hard to change when I'm drunk. Why is that? Because when you're drunk, you're constantly going through withdrawal. And when you're going through withdrawal, time after time, the brain is so inundated with all these chemicals we get from the addiction that nothing much will work. And I've said in the past few weeks, if you think 
this program will stop you from acting out. You're wrong. You stop acting out for 24 hours, and then the program helps prevent you from reacting out. In AA, they say it so freely. First, you have to put a plug in the jug to go to any length for the next 24 hours to not to act out and with the help of the fellowship not to act in with your fantasy. So these character defects are based on a few things that make it self-will run riot. It's usually related to fear. Underneath it all, we're told in the big book and the 12 and 12, especially the 12 and 12, it emphasizes this fear. In the big book, a lot of it's in brackets. Where after every, after the third column, you see the little word bracketed fear. Fear, I'm going to lose what I have. And fear, I'm not going to get what I want. It's that simple. Okay, Harvey Asher. I follow him and other speakers at the dailyreprieve.com. It's going to do it for me right now. Take care. Bye-bye.